training in discipleship, which is about following Jesus or being disciplined followers of Jesus, my, first of all, I'm so stoked to have four sessions because I can now build on something uh, and it's not like how on earth could you even think about covering a subject like this in one session, but I'm sure the person that spoke on prayer thought about the same thing. How do I do that in one session, you know? But at the same point, I'm also like, only four sessions? How do I keep everything to only four sessions? Um, but basically, while hermeneutics is a technical term, I'll explain that later, essentially, I'm here to communicate, ult- ultimately, I'm here to help you with your Bible reading and understanding, reading, understanding, and implementing. And But ultimately, that's not even what I want to do. I don't want you to leave knowing the Bible better. The main goal of this week is that you leave knowing Jesus better. And that's the whole idea of the Bible. And even my my book, like right at, like all through it, but particularly the end, I'm like saying, well, I'm all for you upping your Bible knowledge. But upping your Bible knowledge is not an end in itself. It's a means to knowing Jesus better. Because internal life is not found by knowing the Scriptures. Eternal life is found by knowing the Son whom the Scriptures talk about. Okay, So Abraham walked with God and didn't have a Bible. Enoch walked with God and didn't have a Bible. But the Bible is a means by which we hear God and know Him. And so what I want to do in these couple of sessions is um, probably, hopefully, fill in a gap that I'm assuming is missing for a lot of Christians, or I have good reason to believe is missing for a lot of Christians. A lot of people know that they should read the Bible. A lot of people know they should understand it. A lot of people know they should do what it teaches us. You've probably heard your pastor or someone in the past give a whole sermon about here's the reasons the Bible's good for you, here's the reason you should read it, and here's why it's important to obey. But a lot of people don't know how. And it's a bit like most Australians know they should eat well and exercise and budget their money, but most people don't know how, and so they don't do it. Because knowing the why is often not enough to motivate. I know I, I know I should exercise, but I don't know how I can do it. I don't know I should eat well, but I don't know how. Um, that's why Barefoot Investor, the Barefoot Investor book, was such a huge seller in the last few years, is because someone finally came out and said, we all know we should budget and handle our money and save and whatever. I'm here to tell you how to do it. And, and you can do it by simply going on a date and writing it out on your map or something and just showing you how to do it. And so that's more what I'm going to urge you to do. So in one sense, hopefully these sessions are inspiring, but also hopefully they're practical and informative that you leave with handles, not uh, handles and hows. Okay? Now, apparently, I grew up as a Pentecostal kid. I didn't know that until, <laughs> until I, um, I went to an evangelical camp. So my mum, and I know now as a parent of four kids, why she sent us on camp was to get us out of the house. But, um, but when I was a kid, I thought it was because she wanted us to learn you know, to be with other Christian kids. But anyway, so she sent me on what is now a scripture union camp called uh, Christian Endeavour at Mount Barker. It's a long history. Did I say, have you heard of that? Okay. So I grew up going to see camp uh, in the school holidays. And it was only then uh, that I realized I was Pentecostal because the kids there told me that I was one of the Pentecostal kids. Because there was guys there from uh, Strict Baptist. Okay, so like Oakley. There you go. So I was told at the time that things like not only is, let's say, speaking in tongues that I thought was very normal growing up in Pentecostal church, like that's just that's just Christianity. Uh, it's not my, it's just what Christians do. You raise your hands, 
then you sing the song, then you repeat the chorus, and you do the tongue spit, and then you come back, and then someone shares, and then then you always have prayer after the preach, and, and people will fall down. That's just what happens. That's just what happens. That's just normal church. And then occasionally you go to a special meeting, and there's a guy uh, who will, who's a prophet, okay, and he'll, he'll walk to the third row, and he will say to someone in this row called John, you've got a problem with your right artery, stand up. And the guy feels bad, so he stands up. So that's me, and he'd pray for him, and then he'd go down and he'd say, in the fifth row over there, there's someone, and uh, he'd point to that row, and suddenly a woman would just start screaming and fall on the ground, and he'd go, I curse that spirit of death, get out, and everyone's freaking, and he'd just walk over and he'd go, don't worry, she touched a dead body when she was 10. Yep, that's just normal, that's just church, okay? And then, I, so I just thought that was normal, and then, and then I went to CE camp, and... <laughs> And I, and I found out that certain churches thought that speaking in tongues was not only not right for the saints, but it was also the devil. So I said, so, okay, so then I'll hear that. And then I'm told I'm Pentecostal, and I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, you're the church, well, Pentecostal means you, like, sing a song and you repeat the chorus. Oh, okay. So I, that's, what I, that's what that person thought Pentecostal was. Um, but, and then I, but it was in those years that got me into the Bible. Because I didn't know until I went to city camp that there was a one John in the Bible. And I thought, someone said, turn to one John. I'm like, well, I know there's a John, but what about one? You got the one in the wrong place, you know. And uh, apparently there's a one John there. So it was actually learning different scriptures, hearing different views, understanding that these were people that loved Jesus, that saw some things really differently, that then got me into the scriptures. So my, unless it was just because I was a kid, it may not have been my church. Um, because my church actually ended up being quite word of faith woke if you understand what that means which is actually very bible like to have a church being catholic but it's still the word is so important so it might have just been my age but it's also a combination of my age and inquiry um that i you know got baptized in the holy spirit and spoke in tongues when i was young supernatural encounters where i had a car accident where god saved me and i was the guy in the back seat um, and basically i had a car accident on the side of the road because i heard a voice when i was 15 say you're going to die when you're 16 hearing voices and I had a car accident a few months later smashed into a milk truck can't remember anything helicopter kickback like all the life that happened and the guy in the back seat I was driving told me in hospital later he said he was conscious through the whole operation he said Chad the first thing I remember was that you were had your arms lifted through the shattered windscreen and you're singing in the cage I'm like yeah well that's praying in tongues that's just normal all Christians do that (laughs) um but hanging with other Christians helped me to understand we've all got the same Bible because at CE camp, particularly that year when I was told speaking in tongues was of the devil, um, that made me think, well, I need to start reading this thing and really work out what I believe and why. And that was sort of then really helped me then when I plugged into a church and Shane had a friend who described his experience um, he talked about a, a, combina- a healthy combination of word and spirit. And when I plugged into a church in Adelaide after leaving home, leaving people, giving Christ the name of Abba, and I plugged into a church and I, the preachers within the first service, I could see they appreciated the power of the Holy Spirit, dynamic praise, worship, celebration, God is awesome, and they really valued the scriptures. And as a, as a, as a, as a teenager that went then to CE camp, that was becoming my bent. I'm like, I'm not going to lose the spirit for the sake of the scriptures as if they're different, okay? Uh, I want to have a combination of, of both. 
a healthy combination of both things. So that church then became my young adult year church, which was very formative. During those years in university, I then plugged into an AFES university group, which is evangelical. So most of my friends in my young adult years were Bappos, Uniting, good Anglicans, and <laughs> yeah, the good ones, and um, and people from Brethren backgrounds. Okay, whatever. So most of my friends were of the evangelical bent and having this in common was the main thing. They're the ones that really taught me the gospel is the most important thing. Serving, washing one another's feet, Pentecostals generally aren't that good about it, we'd rather put our hands up than put our hands to work, right? So, but they're the ones that taught me those values. So my, so in my word guy or spirit guy, well, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I want to be a Jesus guy. And so I'm, I'm sort of sounding like we're in kind of familiar territory here. We, we want to be people of the word, we want to be people of the spirit, and both actually could be the same thing. Uh, because Jesus said, my words are spirit, okay? So I'll be, that helps me knowing who we are to sort of help with language. I don't need to over-explain or under-explain. Some people might be a little more explanation poor, but I also want to know what kind of family I'm in, so that's good. Okay, I want to talk to you about following Jesus by getting through this. Not following the Bible, following Jesus through his word. There are many ways that God speaks, Pentecostal, apparently, I believe that God speaks in dreams, visions, angelic encounters, going to heaven, loud voices, little whispers, uh, bit numbers, I'm all for it, I'm, I'm, I'm everything. Not all Christians believe that, but we all agree God can speak to us through scriptures to be heard, okay? We all agree that. But we clearly don't all agree on what the Bible means. We clearly don't all agree on all points of doctrine. We clearly don't all, agree, all agree on things like sexuality. You see that in, in church, church leaders here at the moment. We don't all agree on things like gifts of the Spirit. We certainly don't all agree on stuff about the end of the end, LDS, eschatological, whatever, okay? All that stuff, we're way, way different there. But we've all got the same book. And so it, it all comes down to the way we interpret it. It comes down to this thing called hermeneutics comes down to the way that we handle scripture so my sessions are about helping us to handle this well your homework your mission if you choose to accept it is in the next three days to read the discipleship letters there are three letters in the bible written to timothy and titus historically we call them the pastoral letters the pastoral epistles because we believe timothy and titus were both pastors okay however it's Paul writing to these young men and he's mentoring them. He's discipling them. I think they'd be better called the mentoring disciples because it's an older brother, it's an older spiritual father talking to a younger leader saying, you're serious about the scriptures, you're serious about God's call on your life, I want to help you with that. Okay, so what I want you to do, and I'll explain this later about how to read the Bible well, is I want you to read those three letters, I want you to do each one in one sitting. Sit down, read First Timothy like a letter. Don't stop there. The distinction between chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's no such thing. It doesn't exist in the, in the original language. It's one letter written at a time. So sit down, you read First Timothy. The next day, sit down, read Second Timothy, read Titus, read them like they were supposed to be written. And that is basically um, much of the, the vibe of the book that I've just written because it's that mentoring conversation between experienced sort of Bible teacher 
and younger developing people and mentoring congregations. And much of my stuff today that we are about to get out right now as we walk in is going to come from him. So I'm going to be cherished in passages, which the Bible in featuring me is always reluctant to do. So I'm going to cherish his passages, but I want you to read those letters because that's how you're supposed to read the Bible to get there later. Okay? And I said, let's get on with it. So let's have a look. I want someone to... First thing we're going to do is address the issue of Bible interpretation a little bit. Then I'm going to show you, um, we're going to sing Keep Me in Mind and we'll look at a three-step process. So determining this, the Bible interpretation involves a process. Doing this, then doing this, then doing that. Okay? Some people say, why do you have to interpret? I just want to read the Bible and do it. Okay, well, no, you don't. Nobody ever reads the Bible and does it because if you believe that, we'd be sacrificing animals before we ever came here today. Okay, we don't, you don't believe that. We, do, we read it, we do some type of interpretation, and we selectively do things. But there is a process we follow, whether we're conscious of it or not. I want you to be conscious of that process today. I then want to talk about what kind of Bible you should read, and that probably will cover it for the first session. And then I'll cover, unpack something of the three-step process. So I'm going to try to keep this simple. Three-step process to handle the Bible properly. But first of all, let's look at how God has equipped us to handle the scriptures because you can do it. Hermeneutics is a technical term. It's only one of two terms I'm going to use in this whole thing, so don't freak out. But the subject, I've bought books on hermeneutics that are like this thick and they're called an introduction to hermeneutics. (laughs) And you have to be an academic to read it. So it can be very complex. Um, However, I'm a pastor that talks to normal people so my pastorly talking to normal people is to make things as normal as possible. And so that's what we're going to try to do. So let's look at the issue of hermeneutics. Then we'll look at the process and then I'll talk to you about Bibles. And what time do we need to finish, Shana? How about 40 minutes from now? Okay, let's go. Someone look up 1 Timothy 1. Someone look up 2 Timothy 2. Timothy 1 for me. Yeah, could you put it back? Bro, read, uh, I think read verse 8. Let me get my Bible out because we're researching it. Okay. 1 Timothy 1 and um, actually read, let's have a look at some context for a bit. Let's read from verse, uh, verse 3 to 8. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrines or to pay attention to myths and unrefined doctrines. These promote empty speculation rather than godly teachings, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to foolish distractions. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting. But we know that the law is sinful, provided only it is not defiled. There are people whose teaching is meaningless, stupid, ridiculous, in, in, in um, they've given themselves to meaningless talk, divisive doctrine. Um, Peter goes on to say it can even be demonic and bring the way of truth into people's confusion. But he says, but you, Timothy, you need to understand this. The law is good if provided you use it properly. 
all the Bible is good. The law is good. Now, we don't know exactly, I don't know what, what we can debate what you think Paul means when he says the law. He could mean the Ten Commandments. He could mean the Torah, the five books of the Bible. He could mean the whole Old Testament, the Tanakh is the fancy tense word at the end in case someone, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is called the Tanakh. It's an abbreviation, T-N-K. It stands for the three divisions that the Jews divided their Bible up to. The Torah, which is the law, which is Nephemishkev, starts with an N, and it basically means the writings and then the prophets, T-N-K, the two something Hebrew words. So all preachers use acronyms, even the rabbis do, Tanakh. So if you want to impress someone, the Old Testament is officially called the Tanakh. We don't know what Paul means exactly when he says the law is good, but in general terms he means this, the Bible's good. Okay, all the Bible's good, even Nahum, <laughs> Obadiah, God, um, who reads Obadiah, that all the Bible is good, however, you need to use it properly. The law is good if you use it properly, because there's a right way and there's a wrong way to handle the Bible. And the very Bible that we have been given that can help us is also something that can harm us if you don't use it properly. The very thing that is helpful can be hurtful. The very thing that should bring healing can actually hurt people. The Bible is not just a good thing, it is a powerful thing. And so Jeremiah says, God's speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, is not 23.29, taking notes, Jeremiah 23.29, he says, is not my word like fire and like a hammer? Fire and a hammer that breaks the rock. God's word is like a fire and a hammer. What do those two things have in common? They're both good. Fires are good. Hammers are good. You can't cook. You can't cook. You can't stay warm in winter. You can't drive machinery without a fire. Fire's good. What's a hammer? It builds stuff. It constructs stuff. You can build a house with a hammer. They're both good, but they're both powerful. Fires can hurt you, but they can harden you. Bushfires, burn victims. You've seen the whole thing. Um, hammers are good. It can help you, but you can hit yourself in the head. Uh, or hit an old lady over the head, or build that old lady a house. It all depends on how you use it. Those of you who were at the Seeds Young Adults Camp a couple of years ago, I often use this illustration. It's like sex. Sex is a good thing, but it's also a powerful thing. Sex, the very thing that's meant to help you, can actually end up harming you if you don't treat it properly. Same thing is true with the Bible. All Scripture is good. All Scripture is God-breathed. We'll get to that later. But it needs to be used properly. And the word there for properly, incidentally, if you look in the Greek, which I'll explain how to do later, is the word lawfully. Some Bibles might say lawfully or legally or properly or according to the rules. And it's the same word Paul uses in the next letter to Timothy when he talks about an athlete. He talks about being a farmer, talks about being a soldier, and talks about being an athlete that competes according to the rules. Sports has rules that you need to abide by or you're not going to get the most out of the game. Bible reading is the same. It has rules you need to abide by or you're going to muck things up, hurt people and not get much out of the game, okay? So the law is good, but it needs to be used properly. Now turn to, has someone found 2 Timothy? And read verse, uh, well, read verse 15. This is just a one, one-liner. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed Accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. So here's Paul's two mentoring letters to Timothy. This is his discipleship training letters, okay? Right into Timothy. And in both the letters, he says, handle the Bible properly, mate. 
It's not enough to have it. You need to handle it well. Be a workman uh, that correctly handles the word of truth. And as a workman, one of the things that that shows us is that there is some work required, okay? To handle the Bible properly, there is some work required. You need to do it according to the rules. You need to have some kind of idea of what you're working with and how you are to handle it properly. That is basically what, quote, hermeneutics is all about. And the good thing is, you can do it. You can do it, okay? You can do it. And here in these letters, Paul gives Timothy, there's three things. Young adult camp sees people remember this. There are three things, the three S's that God gives us in order to correctly handle his word. The first one is going to be found in uh, 2 Timothy 2. We're still there. These are all in 2 Timothy now. I want to camp on these letters. I could look at other books, but let's narrow down on these letters. And someone read verse um, 2 Timothy 2 verse 7. Aaron, you got that? Think about what I'm saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. Oh, that was easy, wasn't it? <laughs> because you've got your Bibles open, look at the seven verses before that from the start of chapter two. And that's where Paul's saying, I want you to be a soldier. I want you to be an athlete. I want you to be a farmer. But Timothy, it's not enough that you read the words on the page, mate. You need to reflect on what I'm saying. Your version said, think Think about what I'm saying. When you read the Bible, it's not enough that Timothy was to sit and read this letter. Oh, yeah, look, Paul told me to be a soldier. Paul told me to be an athlete. Paul told me to be a... No, now what he had to do is stop and think. NIV says reflect. And he's to stop and reflect for what reason? So that the Lord himself could help him understand it. The Lord himself can help you understand it. What is the first thing God gives us to correctly handle the scripture? S is the spirit. God gives us himself. God gives us himself. And yesterday we're talking about journaling. Yesterday, we were talking about prayer, which, as we know, is not a one-way activity. It's a two-way conversation. God has given you a spirit. And this is why, in my background, I am super happy that I understand God didn't just give me the Bible. Thank you, evangelical tradition. But I'm really grateful, thank you, Pentecostal tradition, that I learned God has given me the spirit. And the spirit is not some impersonal force that's distant or that's a theological concept the spirit is a person he is sitting right next to me and so if you believe or you've been told that the bible is you know our manual for life which is a meh type of description but whatever god hasn't just given us a book he's given us himself the most important thing and every time you read this book it is the only book in the world where every time you read it, the author is with you, himself. That's pretty awesome. So when you're reading and you go, what the? We've actually not just got a book, God has given us a personal tutor. 
he's given us himself. Paul writes right there to Timothy, don't just read what I'm saying, mate. Reflect on it and allow the Lord himself to show you. That's why Paul the Apostle, (coughs) that's why Saul of Tarsus could know the Bible better than any of us ever will. He knew the Tanakh, he could recite the Torah, he knew it in Hebrew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but he didn't know God until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, until he had a Holy Spirit baptism, until Ananias shared with him and things were lifted, scales were lifted from his eyes and until he spent 10 years just getting to know God on his own, he finally got to understand the scriptures that he'd always had. He knew them, but he never knew them. And Jesus said the same to the Sadducees in Jerusalem. He says, you got the scriptures, but you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You actually don't get it, do you? Because you think the scriptures are your way to get eternal life, but it's not. It's actually coming from me. You need to come to me. You don't, the Bible is not enough. God has given you the spirit. And in order to understand this properly, the Bible is a spiritual book. And we will never grasp it or handle it properly without the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So what has God given us to handle the Word of God properly? What's a tool? If we're workmen, if we're like we have a toolbox, okay, that God's given us to do this thing, He's given us Himself. And so never forget that. Stop and reflect on what I'm reading so the Lord Himself can give me insight. And that's why I need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we read. The second thing that He's given us is maybe not so obvious. Someone's in chapter 3. I want you to read. I'm not shutting my Bible. I really better keep this thing open. Oh, thanks, mate. See? Problem solved. Who's in 2 Timothy? Uh, Yeah, 2 Timothy 3. Someone read me 10 to 15, would you? But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, how's that one, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many verses, sorry? 15. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, continue with what you've learned, because you know what? Verse 14, continue in what you've learned, because you know those who taught you. Those who taught you. Verse 15, he says, you've known the Bible since you were in infancy. Now, how the heck was that possible? How did Timothy know the Bible since he was, some of you said this of yourselves, most of your life? How did he do that? Because he had a mum and he had a grandma. Paul starts this passage by saying, you know about my life. You know about the stuff you've learned from me. And I want you to keep remembering the stuff you learned from me because you know me. You know the scriptures because your mum taught you and your grandma taught you. What is one of the the next major toolbox, as it were, that God has given us to learn the scriptures properly? Is God has given us the saints. God has put other people in our life to learn from. If you want to handle the Bible well, it's not enough that it's just you and the Holy Spirit. 
And that sounds blasphemous to a Pentecostal. But it's not enough. God has not, God will never give you the full understanding that you need or that is in his word. He will give it to you through other people. He will use other people. And it might be professionals who studied their whole lives. It might be kids that you teach in Sunday school who you learn stuff from. And God was saving uh, a word from them to actually help you learn something. It may be a pastor. It may be a prophetic person. It may be a secular person. You might be listening to Jordan Peterson and go, boom, he just taught me something about the Bible I'd never seen. Okay, God has put other people in our world because that book is complex. It ha- c- contains multifaceted wisdom from a multifaceted God and it takes a multifaceted community to grasp it and to explain it to other people. I don't care who your favorite Bible teacher is, he doesn't know everything. Okay, he doesn't. God will keep, uh, will keep levels or layers or dimensions of truth from you so that he can use other people to teach you because God wants us to rely on other people. And so years ago, I'm down at the beach with my wife and we're at Normanville. And I'm like, kids are playing in the sand. And my wife's there reading the magazine. And I look down south to the, uh, the cliffs, you know, Cape Jarvis type of way. And I'm like, hey, kids, check out the, um, the, uh, the big windmills up there on the, on the cliffs. And my kids look up and they say, Dad, there's nothing there. And they keep playing. What are you talking about? Ron goes, I'm looking at that and my wife. Hey, check out, look up. And there's about 12, maybe 10, 12 massive wind turbines up on the, the cliff top. She looks up and she goes, no, you're not, Dad, there's nothing there, you're dreaming. I'm like, you idiot, what, what's the matter with you? Look up on the cliffs, there's some massive turbines, t- windmills up there. They look up again, they say, Dad, you're dreaming. There's nothing there. And I'm looking up and I'm thinking, what the heck is their problem that I can't get on? right and i'm like my vision's no better than them we're all in the same place there's no there should be no difference why can i see something that totally they cannot see and then it occurred to me i'm the only one in my family wearing sunnies and i take off my sunnies and i look back on the cliff and those windmills disappeared because when you wear polarized lenses it cuts out horizontal light vision it's part of the thing that your eyes and so when i put these things on i could see something that's always there but it took the help of polarized lenses to see that gave my glasses to dave put this on she looked up she could count see the windmills what's the problem you can read the bible and there is truth that's always been there but sometimes it takes the help of someone who has particular training particular gifts a particular experience in life, a particular personality type, they would, this is what happens when you do Bible studies and you're sitting around and you're chatting in a group and you're like, I never would have seen it that way before. That's because that person has something about them. It can be supernatural. It can just be their personality, whatever. They see something that is definitely there, but you've missed, okay? God puts other people into our lives to teach us. And so by all means, study the Bible for yourself but don't study the bible by yourself only 
study, read, understand, and apply the Bible for yourself. But don't do it by yourself. God has put you in community. The Bible is not just a spiritual book. Yes, it is, and so we need the Spirit. But the Bible is also a community book. And so God has given us the saints to help keep us on track, see things we would never see on our own, and God has planned it that way. Exclusively. Study it for yourself, but not only by yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's part of being here today. We, we believe that because we want to learn from other people. Next thing. I'll read this passage because it's a little bit obscure. But no, it's not obscure. Uh, verse 16. We'll just keep reading. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for many things. Teaching, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man, person of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who would judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. It could well be that keep your head has become my favorite Bible verse. I think we should make bumper stickers out of that just for Christians. Keep your head on, would you? The Bible is a spiritual book, and so God gives us the spirit to handle it properly. The Bible is a community book, so God gives us the saints so that we can come to a full understanding of its multifaceted truth. But the Bible is also an intelligent book. The Bible is a history book. The Bible is a complex literary work, and so God gives us a brain that we can approach the Bible intelligently. God gives us what we call the science of hermeneutics. Oops, I'm terrible on the whiteboard. Um, the science of hermeneutics. This is, the, this is basically the technical term for intelligently reading and understanding the Bible. It's a spiritual book. It's a community book. It's an intelligent book. So God gives us the science of hermeneutics. And the reason that academics and scholars and Bible teachers use the word science is because it involves a logical process and procedure to follow. There are rules which govern the game. You can repeat and test and repeat and test. And you can test a theory and, and, and find it wanting or find it strong. This is what science does. Okay, science tests and repeats, tests and repeats in order to get to the truth. And so hermeneutics is basically what we're going to be, is basically what we're looking at now. The science of hermeneutics. Every now and again, I'll mention drawing on the spirit. Every now and again, I'll mention drawing on other people to develop your understanding. But I'm fundamentally, in these sessions, going to be looking at the science of hermeneutics, how you can handle the Bible properly by following a process, following a procedure, and doing it 
intentionally and doing it knowingly. I've said before, many of us read the Bible and some of it's instinctive. We just know what to do. But I want to help you see what you actually do and uh, in, order to, in order to do it well. So we're going to find that process of hermeneutics, the follow the pattern, the three-step process I want to present to you. And it's found in Nehemiah chapter 8. You can find Nehemiah. Give me time, Shane. I'm not actually, I don't have a clock. Cool. Now, to find Nehemiah, open your Bible to the middle and you hit Psalms. It's just to the left. Psalms. Nehemiah is the last book in the Old Testament. If the Old Testament is laid out chronologically, okay? Because the Old Testament is grouped, or the Bible is grouped according to the types of books that they are, it's in the history part of the Bible, the first bit before Psalms, basically. But it's the last bit of history. So when Nehemiah finishes, that's basically where the Old Testament story finishes, and then Matthew comes in 400 years later. So if we were to lay out the Bible and read the one big story, the last thing we would read would be Nehemiah. But here it is before Psalms. Everyone okay? Oh, chapter 8. Good question. Now, I want someone with the CSB to read this out, and that's your Bible of choice here. I understand. Do you have that, Shano? Okay, you're going to read verse uh, verses 8 to 12, but bef- verses 8 to 10. But before he does, basically, this is God's people in history. Jerusalem, God's people, the, the city that David built, Jerusalem, okay, basically, was destroyed by a guy called Nebuchadnezzar. So my name's in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. And all the prophets are like, whoa, 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 this is terrible. Uh, and, but they say, but guess what? One day you're going to come back and start rebuilding. Nehemiah is part of that rebuilding of Jerusalem. And once they've done the rebuilding of the walls, they have a big church service. And that is what this is here in Nehemiah 8, verse 8 to 10. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand each word. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, the Levite and the captain's people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go what is good drink what is sweet and send portions to those who have nothing prepared since today is holy to our lord then freed with the joy of the lord your god everyone knows that verse don't they certainly us pentecostals did uh, but that verse has a context read verse eight slowly they read out of the book of the law of god translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand each word. Here in this passage, there is a, a three-step <laughs> there's a three-step process. Here in this passage, <laughs> that's right. You, you're such good listeners, and you're taking notes anyway. There's a three-step process to handling the scriptures. The first thing they did was read it. And, by the way, they read it and translated it. Okay? The reason, number one, they read it and translated it is because these people at this gathering had spent the best part of a century living in an Aramaic-speaking world. So it is 
exceedingly likely they were all Aramaic speaking. But the scriptures that were being read were written in the language of Hebrew. So Ezra gets up and he reads the Bible in Hebrew, but the people don't understand it. It's like you and I going to a Greek Orthodox church. My sister married a Greek. We went to a Greek Orthodox church. The kids get sprinkled or whatever. You got no idea what's going on. It's all Greek. It's all Greek to me, okay? So Ezra's reading it in Hebrew, and then the Levites think, no, 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 we need to translate it. The first step in handling the Bible properly is to read it. That's why you're paying the big bucks to be here, because this is like, this is like revolutionary. Read it in a language that makes sense to you. Read it. So read it in a language that makes sense to you. The second thing they did is it says there in verse 8, they read it and translated it, and then they explained the meaning. It's one thing to know what the Bible says, but it's another thing, step two, to know what the Bible means. Yeah? This is where our disagreements come from. I know the Bible says women will only be saved through childbearing. That's what it says. Step two, what the heck does that mean? I know the Bible says... <laughs> uh, let's stick with the girl stuff. <laughs> Women should stay silent and not speak. It's disgraceful. I know that's what it says. What does that mean? I know the Bible says he will come on clouds of heaven with a loud trumpet blast and the voice of an angel. What does that mean? That's step number two explaining what it means what does it say what does it mean the third step is in the next two verses where nehemiah then realizes that all the people are crying like the, the, it says there in verse 9 they all started weeping and he says no <laughs> no, no, no 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 don't cry because today's a good day today's a holy day today you should be rejoicing they knew that what the Bible said and what the Bible meant, step three, mattered to them. It demanded some kind of response. And they thought the right response was to cry. And Nehemiah said, no, <laughs> that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible means. But the right response isn't to cry. The right response is to be happy. Okay. Step one, you read it. Step two, you discover the meaning. And how you do that by reflecting on what I'm saying. They read the Hebrew text. You find the meaning by researching what other saints said. Ooh, I wonder what other saints think about that. You find the meaning by reasoning with your brain what it means because you're an intelligent reader. You find the meaning. And the last step is you respond somehow. If the three R's of a good education are reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's of Bible interpretation are read, reflect, reason, research, and then respond. This is the pattern we follow. I read it, I reflect on it to find the meaning, and then I respond to it. Now, I like to phrase these three steps 
as three questions. Because if there's anything that I want to encourage you to do to be a good Bible reader, it's to ask questions. Ask questions. All my best learning has come by asking questions. God is not afraid of questions. Okay, You're not going to intimidate him. He's not going to get offended and think whatever. Ask questions. Here's the three questions. What does it say? What does it say? Question two. What does it mean? What does it mean? Question three. What does it matter? What does it matter? Who cares? What does it matter? So it says Peter walked on water. It means Peter walked on water, probably. But what does it matter to me? What does it matter to me? I don't, who cares that Peter did that? What possible good can come? What are the implications? How do I respond to that? What does it matter? Now, one of the big, now, at a good Baptist church, we are taught how to read the Bible, they understand this. At, at churches that don't understand this, this is how a lot of Bible studies go. Let's read this passage of Scripture. This is what it says. And then the Bible study leader will say, now, what does that mean to you? That is the wrong question. The question is not, what does it mean to you? Because you're not that important. The question is, what does it mean? Because the meaning has always been the meaning. It means what it means. It means what it's always meant. And that never changes. But the third question of what does it matter? There, there may be some variety there. Because when the Bible says, husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church. When that means... Husbands, serve your wife, give your life for them. It means that. How that matters to you and how that matters to me might be different things because you might not be married. Your wife might like to be loved a certain way that mine doesn't. Okay, you rub her feet, but you dare to. I'll never touch my wife's feet. That's how I love her by never touching her feet. But other husbands, that's how they love their wife. That's what it means then. You may be a chick and you're like, well, I know what it says, I know what it means, but to me it matters a little bit differently because I'm in a totally different context. And so that's often, the confusing these two steps here is what people that lead Bible studies, the, the main mistake they make. No, 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 it's not what does it mean to me, what does it mean? This is a scientific process, there's an objective meaning. And then the subjective question of, well, what does that matter to you? What does it matter to me? That might be different. Okay, that might, might be different. And there's, this is where we come into what we call the art of hermeneutics. There's a little bit of subjectivity and creativity there. Okay. This whole process, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it matter? The overarching technical, impress your friends term for this, is hermeneutics. This whole thing. Hermeneutics is Greek, of course, everything is, Windex, you know. And the Hermes, Hermes was basically a Greek god, 
okay, which is why Paul in Iconium, one of those words you read out before, when he travels there in Acts 14, uh, they say <coughs> that they were pagans and a little bit, they were farming people, a little bit simple people, and they were like, Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul is Hermes, because he's the chief speaker. If you read about that in Acts, they called him Hermes, because Hermes was a god that was in human form, that translated the messages of the gods. So he communicated what the gods were saying to people. He interpreted divine messages. So Hermes, that's what he did. Hermes was a common name in Romans 16. Paul says, g'day to a guy called Hermes. And the, there's variations of the word hermeneutics in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Pentecostal chapters, that talk about interpreting tongues. Tongues say this, but what does that mean? What do we do with it? Okay, so that the word hermeneutics is kind of in there. That's one of the uh, one of only two technical terms you're going to get with me is hermeneutics, is this process. Three steps. What does it say? What does that mean? And what does it matter? The whole thing is called hermeneutics. This middle step is so important and is where all our disagreement comes. It's what makes the difference between the Baptists and the Anglicans and the Pentecostals. Most of it comes here. This step is so important, it gets its own technical term. And that term is exegesis. Okay, a few nods. It doesn't mean exegesis, like I'm, I'm now an atheist, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm exegesis. It's like, no, exegesis. Exa, so exa, like exodus, means out of, coming out of, and, and uh, Jesus uh, basically what it means is to draw, to draw out. So we use it in this term to say, I'm drawing out the meaning from the text. I'm drawing out what the author meant when he said those words. Okay? Some of you tell me, what, what's the opposite? Impress your friends. Tell me what's the opposite of exegesis. Yeah, well done. There you go. Okay. So eisegesis is drawing into. It's saying... I'm the most important person on the planet, in case you didn't realise, because I'm a Westerner. Uh, so I am going to tell the Bible what I think it means. And I'm going to put my meaning into that. Okay, No, no, no. Exegesis is an objective, scientific uh, journey of discovery where I am pulling out what the author has always meant. Okay? Why do I say that? Hermeneutics is not just a Bible issue. You use hermeneutics all the time. When you, you, when you go to a restaurant and you get handed a piece of paper and it's got um, words on the left column and it's got numbers on the right column, you know what you're reading. What do those numbers mean? Price. What's the words on the left side? The name of food. Okay, it's meals. How do you know that? Because when you flip the paper over, what does it say on that side? Menu. Okay. You know that when you get that list, you can read the words, but you, you know that those words mean meals. And the numbers on the side is not how heavy they are. This is how many kilograms those meals are. No. It's not how many kilometers away you have to walk to get them. No. It's not how many meals you get. Pizza, 16. Woo, woo, I'm not that hungry. No, that's $16. <laughs> I understand that. I know what that means. 
because I've been trained subconsciously maybe to understand that literature. I know what it says, Hawaiian 16. What does it mean? Well, I'm in a pizza bar, okay, and Hawaiian, so it probably doesn't mean I'm going to order a Hawaiian dancer to come out or something, or a Hawaiian song or a Hawaiian, no, Hawaiian probably means pizza with pineapple on it, right? That's probably, that's what it means. 16 means dollars, because I'm in Australia right now. I'm not in Japan, if I was in Japan, it would mean yen, maybe. So that's what it means. It means if I say I want that, I'm going to get a Hawaiian pizza, a pizza with ham and pineapple, $16. What does it say? What does it mean? Third step, what does it matter? Well, my kids are going to be sitting at the table and they're going to be going, I love pineapple for pizza, I want one of them. I'm going to look at it and go, well, to me, it matters differently. I'm going to avoid that. And by the way, $16, you two are going to share one. I mean, you're not having one each. So... The implications of that truth may differ to the people on the table, but it has one meaning. <laughs> what does Hawaiian 16 mean to you? No. Well, it means I get 16 of them. I get 16 pieces of pineapple. No. It means that. But how it matters to you, well, you can work that out yourself. Okay? When, I'm driving, when, I, when I drive to Adelaide from Victor and I put in my destination on Google, Google Maps, and it's taking me to North Adelaide because who knows what's out there. I need Google Maps to find it. And I'm realizing that suddenly my program starts saying on my screen, there's a red line down South Road. What does the app say? The road is red. Okay, South Road is red. That's what it says. What does it mean? Well, it means someone painted it overnight with red paint. Obviously, that's what it means. Yesterday it was bitumen, now it's red. Okay. Uh, a politician says, well, it means, well, you know what red means to me, don't you? Red means that it's socialist. So that road is socialist. So that's what red means. A football person says, no, it means it's uh, Manchester United red. That's what it means. A romantic says, no, red, <laughs> South Road's romantic. That's what it means. It's in love. You know, a, an accountant says, no, no, South Road must be in financial deficit. If it's red, that's what red means. And, uh, and someone else is flowing with blood today, you know. No, there's only one meaning. And it doesn't matter what it means to you. The question is, what does the author mean? When the author of that program said, the road is red, he means something. He means the road is busy, congested, traffic, jam, whatever. That's what it means. And that's what it always means, because I don't decide the meaning, he does. The author decides it. Now, now that I know what it means, I have a decision to make. What does it matter to me? What does it matter to me that the road is red and it means it's heavy traffic? Well, it depends on my situation. If I'm really, if I'm running on time for a meeting that's really important, I've got a decision to make. It, it might mean to me that I need to get on the phone right away and say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be late, it's a traffic problem. It might mean to me that I choose a different path that day. 
oh crap, there's a busy, busy I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly duck down Quick Street, uh, Quick Street or whatever and go to Marion Road. I'm going to go that way instead. That's what it matters to me. It might matter that I actually gone in a university lecture and I don't care if I miss this one, so I'm just going to sit in the congested traffic and use it as an excuse. That's what it matters to me. It might mean that I, it might matter to me and I might choose to put on a podcast. I might choose to just turn around and go home. I don't, whatever. You can do whatever, you may be able to do whatever you want, but the way you respond to it doesn't change what it means. But there's some type of response required. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating it. Here's what it says in a language that you understand. That's what we have to do with the Bible. Read it in a language that makes sense to you. Then, step two, seek to understand what it means. Sometimes that can be really fast. Uh, you know, Mary gave birth to Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, pretty obvious. Yeah, that's very quick. Sometimes this step can be really hard. Things of eschatology, gifts of the Spirit, women don't speak, or have, the, have kids, all, all those type of complex things. Like, what does that mean? Sometimes on complex issues, even though this is only the sec, sec, one, of, uh, two, uh, one of three steps, sometimes the vast majority of our work needs to be done. And as, as I said, most of our disagreements are trivial. And then lastly, now that we've done our very best to work out what it means, we can then look at other other steps what do i do about it do i cry and mourn and weep or do i love because that's what god says to us nehemiah in that story they realized it meant it mattered to them somehow even though what they were reading was a thousand years old and they were reading those scriptures nehemiah a thousand years after moses without the context so they're reading a passage of scripture that says what it's always said that meant what it's always meant. Now, a thousand years later, we're hearing it and we're going, what are you doing? And they responded in that story wrong. We can get each stage wrong. Okay? And to be correctly handles the word of truth, we at least need to know what those steps are. Sometimes they're so quick, it's subconscious, but we know we can get them wrong at every step. The good question is, you can get it right at every step. And that's part of what these days are about. I want to look have a break now i think is that break time we're going to look at how to read the bible because we need to know what it says we're going to spend some time on how to discover its meaning we're not going to have nearly enough time to do that and then we're going to have a look at how do i discover the implications for me or the possible applications for me or for us today okay three steps necessarily have to be done in this order or can because sometimes there'd be a scenario where you might not necessarily know the, the meaning yet but and you might go well does it matter if I know the meaning or not but knowing the importance of what the, the outcome of that meaning will make might go well it is going to be important so I need to find out what the meaning is or like today it could be for example today today you're you're in a meeting and you're not going to allow anyone to speak Instead, and you go, well, that's important because things might actually have to change. So then I know that that's important because it matters for that reason, even though I don't know why. Because I don't know what the actual meaning is there. Like, why do I need to speak or not speak? Like, why is it going to change? I, I think I hear you. So in that question, the people who made that decision over here did that.
because they went through this process and probably did it really quickly. It says that, which means it means that, so this is what we're going to do. Some people, you come into that church context and you find yourself in their implication mode. And to find out how did they make this decision, you ask yourself, well, why does this church deacon come? Why does this church not allow women to speak? Why does blah, 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 blah? Then you need to trace, you need to trace back and go, what does the Bible actually, which is what I had to do when I met my Oakland Baptist friend. Well, of course I speak in tongues and believe in the supernatural. But why? But what does the Bible actually say? We all agree what 1 Corinthians 14 and 12 says. It was here that we had disagreement. What does it mean and how does that matter for us today? So you, come in, you might come in on this zone, but I still think you need to go through that process, process to work out why is this happening. think i think a good i think a good distinction here is that you're talking about how do i handle this issue of life that i'm seeing like women not speaking but i'm saying this is how we handle scripture so sometimes you get an issue of life and well, i can handle that any way that i like how i handle this life do i choose chocolate or strawberry milk well there's the issue of life okay so um but that doesn't necessarily mean i've gone through a scriptural process to get there so in handling the bible yes this this passage works out but in handling life situations or things that other people have decided then uh, then yeah that's 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 a different a different process but you can look at a life situation that other people have created or whatever and go does that have a scriptural basis to do that then i need to do i need to go through this journey and work out how do i handle scripture to work out do we call it to Maybe. And there's certain things that we... I'm not saying the Lord's saying this, but I say this is my opinion. There's certain opinions we just have in life that actually you say, it's my opinion, I've got no scriptural basis for it because I don't have a scriptural basis on who my superannuation fund in, I've just never thought about it. My opinion is you go with Host Plus, mm. you know, and that's just, that's just an opinion. Uh, so what's your scriptural conviction? Well, I've never thought about it, that's just an opinion I have. So not everything we have has a scriptural conviction, uh, nor does it maybe necessarily need to, but that's an argument for another. 
Have a stretch. Smoker. Quick, quick session one summary. The Bible needs to be handled well because it's not only a good thing, it's a powerful thing. There's a good way and there's a bad way, healthy way, unhealthy way. Make sure you handle the scriptures properly. As a workman, you can learn how to do that and it needs some intentionality. Nehemiah provides us a three-step process to do that well. I like to frame those as three questions. The first question is, what does it say? Second question is, what does it mean? Thirdly, what does it... This process, this practice, this procedure and the rules that govern this game, if we use the athletic illustration, the broad term for this is hermeneutics, uh, which we learn from Greek pagan mythology, so that's good. Um, and the second step, which we will really probably get into, we'll touch on it today, but we'll get into it tomorrow, has its own technical term, which is exegesis, because I'm discovering what it means, which means what does the author mean. My acronym for that, because all preachers need an acronym, is this, the aim of exegesis is to discover the author's intended meaning. The aim of what does it mean, exegesis, is to discover the author's intended meaning. Not what it means to you, what it means to the author. And once we know that, what does it mean? And of course, God hasn't left us to fend for ourselves to handle the scriptures. Because the Bible is a spiritual book, he has given us the spirit because the bible's a community book he's given us the saints other people to learn from but the bible's also an intelligent book that we need to keep our head and not be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and every myth and whatever fad that comes through the church we keep our head and so we employ this scientific process boom good summary chad well done okay now we're going to be looking over here at what does the bible say in order to work that out how do, you, how do you know what the Bible says? Oh, well done. That's amazing. You have to read it, but you have to read it, Nehemiah 8, in a translation that makes sense to you because you don't understand ancient Greek, Hebrew, and occasional Aramaic. We only understand English. And let's face it, there's only certain English we understand because not even I understand the King James, okay? So <laughs> there is, we need to read the Bible. So this first thing we're going to look at is which Bible should we read? And I'm going to approach that in a way that's quite uniquely Chad, so just bear with me. And I'll look, look at the Bible we should read, and then we're going to look at how we should read the Bible, which again will take us four days. I'm going to choose one little thing to help you do the how. So we're going to be doing step one for the most part of this session, and then I might touch on what does the Bible mean, step two. I might touch there, because this is such a big subject, I won't be able to deal with all of it tomorrow. I'm going to suggest to you that you get yourself Every serious Bible student, how long have you seriously been reading the Bible? A serious Bible student should have four different Bibles. Four different Bibles. Here they are. Something old. Something new. Something borrowed. Something blue. They are the four Bibles you should have. Go to Kurong and just say, where's your something? <laughs> no, something old something new, something borrowed, something blue. The first type of Bible you should have is a something old Bible. Here's mine. 
when I was 16, in fact, it's written in here in the front somewhere, presented to Chad Mans with my mum and dad, Christmas 1994. Okay. So when I was 15, 16, just before CE camp that year, uh, for Christmas I was given this Bible. And it's an NIV study Bible, 1984 NIV edition, because I was given it in the 90s. And this basically became in Latin my sola scriptura. Okay, this became my adult Bible, the one without the pictures. Uh, but it became my serious adult Bible. I took it to CE camp. This is the one where I was, I was arguing with the people from Oakton Baptist about 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And I started underlying and, and working at all the stuff about tongues in there. Okay. This is the one that I then took to AFES when I was at uni. And then to my young adult years, I'd take it to camps, I'd take it to conferences, I'd take it to seminars and stuff like this. This is the one I wrote in when I became a preacher. This is the one that I started putting sticky notes in because that's sort of a, a preacher's way of having a cheat sheet in your Bible. So you're just looking like this and people think you're really smart. Then I've got underlying bits. I've got little notes. I've got my own cross-references because um, while well, the NIV study Bible has those, I've written all mine there. In the back here, I've got prophecies. Um, I've got prof times where God spoke to me about our church and other things that I've written down. This is my most well-worn Bible. It's my something old Bible. And you can have a cabinet full of weapons. But if you're going to face the enemy, you better just have one sword that you're really good at using than a whole cabinet full that you're just awkward with. So I've got stacks of Bibles, and I'm going to show some of them to you in a moment. But I'd rather have one old faithful sword that I know my way around. Because there are times where I don't know where a verse is, and I don't have my interwebs on me or my phone because I've deliberately not had it. But I can picture it on the left-hand side, right-hand column under the blue bit. I, and I can find it that way. And so even today, my 16, not 16 years old as old than that because I'm older than 32, uh, but it, my, my Bible that I was given when I was 16, the NIV 1984 study Bible may not necessarily even be my favourite Bible. And I'm not telling you to get one too. I'm just saying for me, this is my something old Bible. Have a Bible that you're really familiar with. Have a Bible that you know your way around. All right. And if you've already got one, because some of you have been reading the Bible for 30 years, keep it, for goodness sake. This is the Bible I take with me on ministry trips. This is the one I take to prayer meetings because I know there's the odd occasion I'll spontaneously contribute um, through the Holy Spirit or in some of my circles, I'll just be asked to preach without any notes and come up and, Chad, you've got a word, come and share. Hmm. So I want this Bible on me when that happens because I know my way around this one. It's my something old Bible. If you don't have a something old Bible, then I think... By the sound of what I heard before, most of you probably do have a my go-to Bible. But if you are encouraging someone to get a go-to Bible, the main things I'd suggest on picking one would be pick one that, that maybe that community, well, the things you need to work out is their reading level, how good a reader they are and how big a reader they are. I've got to do this for my teenager at the moment. He's not a big reader and I'm a bit, not, you know, I've still got to negotiate that. Um, maybe what your community uses. So if someone comes to this church, Probably Shane would probably recommend the CEV, generally, is that the one you use, CSV? Generally speaking, because in an environment like this, if other people are reading that out loud, it's best that you can follow it along, you know, if, if you're choosing a regular Bible for a new believer, let's say. I would also suggest a study Bible, because it just helps with the notes, you need to understand that. And I definitely suggest a translation that's been put together by a committee of people, not a sole author, like 
Eugene Peterson or Brian Singh or David Phillips from the old days or whatever, a committee of people because wisdom comes from counselling. So that's basically what I've, you know, the community people should really recommend because they know that person best. So when I write about this in my book, I don't recommend any brand of the Bible because it all depends what, I don't know who you are, you know. It's what is best for you, but definitely get a study Bible. Definitely get one that's written by a committee. And for goodness sake, if you're recommending a Bible for a new, a new believer, tell them to get a paper one. Because paper trumps screen. When it comes to a regular reading, it might make, might make me sound old, but hang on. When it comes to a regular Bible, a regular go-to, regular reading Bible, that's what something old is. When you read a Bible on, on the page, and we never would have had to say this 10 years ago, but when you read a Bible on the page, I can see more in one glance than I ever can on a phone or I ever can on a, on a screen. And that helps your cognitive ability. When I said before, read that verse. Now, listen, just have a look at the six verses before it and you see this is the context it's in. With us with paper Bibles, just go, yeah, I can see that. The screen shows much little, text, far little text on the phone. Uh, it's not the best Bible to have as your go-to. I-M-H-O, okay? My humble opinion. We'll get to screens later. But your main Bible should be a paper one. You see more at once. There's something about engaging the senses for your memory and retention. There's something about sound and smell. Everyone's bobbed their hand. You've got to smell. There's something about feel. You're engaging more senses than you are when you're doing this, when you're getting arthritis in your thumb. There's something more about that than a screen will get. So call me old school, but I'm going to say recommend a paper, study Bible, blah, blah, blah. My point is, four different Bible choices have one is a something old Bible. Have one that's really familiar to you and um, get to know it well. Um, and don't keep it in the back of the car. And you know, keep it in the boots. I'll get driven around. People think you read it a lot. It's a little bit rough. Not talking to anyone. Now, that's something old. The next one is something new. If you've been a Bible reader for a long time and you haven't got a new Bible lately, get one. Get one. People tell me, you know, I'm a bit bored with reading the Bible. Well, get a new one. Like, get a new version, man. My dad did this. I learned this from my dad because in the 80s growing up, I'd see him take his light brown New American Standard Bible to Bible studies. It's part of the whole Jesus Kids of Charismatic Days thing, so it was very popular. had the little tabs on the side so you can find the book, you know, the gold little tabs. And um, showing our age. And he would take that. But as in the 90s, I remember every morning he'd have Eugene Peterson's Message Bible sitting on the kitchen table because for him it was new, it was fresh, it was different. And as an experienced Bible reader, he needed something just new to help me see stuff I've never seen before. Aramaic, which isn't in the text, but I like the little notes he does and it is refreshing for me. I wouldn't suggest it for someone as a regular reading version, but it's my something new Bible. And if in five years I come and do this same thing again, I might have a different one. It just happens to be my something new Bible at the moment. It's, it's, it's different enough that I go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that ministered to my head or that ministered to my heart or whatever. If you don't have a new Bible, get one. Get a something new Bible. Something old, something new, something borrowed. Ooh, okay. I've got heaps of something borrowed Bibles. A something borrowed Bible is one that I will take for a certain situation use it, and then put it back on the shelf and not think about it again. 
And depending on the circumstance, I'll choose a different Bible for that. I don't read these regularly. I use them for a specific purpose and put them back until next time. And I've got heaps. And this is where I'm going to talk about translation. I've got here the message, the New Living Translation, and a Good News Bible with little cartoons that I think I was given as a kid. Okay? These, on the spectrum of Bible translations... This, these sort of fit down this end. There's two ways to approach a translation of any foreign work. And I'm going to look at this in a moment. We'll give us an example. One approach is to try to match the exact word in the Greek and, and choose the closest word in the English. And so it's word for word, really trying to get the words right. The other approach is to go... Well, that ends up really clunky and difficult to read, in case you don't know, by translating a foreign language. So what we'd rather do on this sort of side of the spectrum is translate the thoughts. This is the, the Marbo vibe, okay? This is the vibe of what he was saying. So it's not necessarily the exact words, but it was the, the thoughts of the author. So yes, he says brothers, but we don't want girls to feel left out. So we're going to say brothers and sisters in here, okay? We're going to communicate the thought of what the author was doing. Now, the advantage of this is it makes it really easy to read and generally easy to understand. People don't have to think, which is good for a lot of Christians. They don't have to think too hard. However, what the weakness of these versions is that they combine, I'm going to sit down for this, the first two steps in our process. What the Bible says and what that means, they bring those together when they formulate how they think it's translated best. Okay, they're communicating the thought. This is what the author was meaning when he said that. It's all mixed into the bunch. These guys over here don't care what the author meant. They're going to leave that to you to study out for yourself. They're just going to tell you what he said. And you've got to work out the meaning for yourself. I won't take time to look at it, but I'll give you an example. Luke 2 verse 1. No, 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 keep going, Chad. Okay, fine. So these Bibles, they're meaning-based. Meaning-based, it's thought for thought. The fancy pants term is dynamic equivalent. Okay, and they're trying to communicate the thoughts of the author. So I borrow these types of Bibles when I go to a kid's chapel at a local Christian school. Or if I'm at a wedding or a funeral. And I know that there's going to be people there who know very little about the Bible they might be non-Christians. Uh, I'm going to try to choose the simplest language and communicate what the Bible says and what the Bible means together because I don't want them to think too hard. Okay, They're all grieving. So I'm going to choose the yeah. simplest language I can. However, sometimes I have other purposes. Sometimes I want to study a passage. I want to learn something. I'm doing a Bible study with a group. I want to understand a certain area of theology. I'm debating with people about speaking in tongues. So what do I want for that? is I want Bibles up here that are as close to the word for word. I want to know what Paul actually said, and I'll do through the thinking for myself. Thank you very much, because I don't know if I can trust these people to tell me what he meant. What if they come from a strict Baptist background and don't believe in tongues? Well, they're going to be communicating that in their interpretation, aren't they? Well, I, I want to know what the words are, and I'll work out the meaning for myself. Thank you very much, because I'm a good student of the Scripture. So... For those purposes, I might go old school, very rarely, and get the King James. I might use my Amplified, 
I'd never read that in bed. It's so damn long, and it's just. It's, but it can bring out some of the mean, some of the the words, you know, and what the Greek nuance of those words are. The ESV, very popular, kind of fits in this end of the spectrum. It's, it's a bit more word for word. I've got this one that a mate got me, which is 26 translations under each other. So, so I have a verse. And it might have, of all the 26 translations that it uses, it might have that verse written four times by the four most different versions of that. Oof, okay, that's heavy going. And then I've got this clunky old thing called Young's Literal, which is a couple of hundred years old. Very clunky, very literal. So, let me read you a scripture. Hang on. It's also very difficult to negotiate. Young's says this in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days, there went forth a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world be registered. All the world is registered. That's what the Greek, closest we can get to the Greek word for word said. So, what does that text say? Well, it says Caesar Augustus wanted to register all the world. What does that mean? Who the heck is Caesar Augustus? Yeah. What does it mean to register? Does that mean all the world? Is he going around to every bit of plant life? And somehow registering it on a software program? Is he going around to every animal species and registering, like writing up a registry of them? Is he, what is that, what, what is he doing? Is he travelling to Australia and is he documenting all the marsupials because he's registering all the world? Well, maybe I need to read another translation that is going to take me a little bit more in this meaning direction. So I might read the... NIV. Let's choose that one. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I'll read the NIV. And the NIV is a little bit more down in the spectrum. And so even though the most literal version is, he's going to register all the world. The NIV say, we don't want our audience to think too much about what that means. So we're going to do something a little different with that verse. We're going to put it this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree... Sounding very similar so far. That a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Okay. So it says register all the world. Which says to my mind, plants, animals, fish, and the whole planet all the way through to Australia. No. It's not register, it's a census. So it means registering people, doesn't it? That's what a census is. It's about people, not about plants. Okay. The other thing the NIV does is it sneaks a word in there that's not in the Greek. And it's the word woman. So it's not the world that was going through a census. It was the Roman world. Now, the Bible says world. But it doesn't mean the planet. It means that Caesar Augustus had a census for the Roman world. 
The NIV people don't want you to think it means Australia and Fiji. The NIV people add to the Bible. <laughs> because the word Roman is not in there. It's not in the original. It's not in the Greek, which is why the literal people don't have it. But the NIV people don't trust you to think through the process. They are going to tell you the thought of the author. Even though it says world, it means Roman world. Then you get a New Living Translation. And the New Living Translation might do something different. Let's look. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus. Ah, so there's a guy called Caesar Augustus. I thought Caesar was his first name. And Augustus was his last name. No, 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 no. These guys are telling me the Roman Emperor Augustus. So Augustus is actually his first name. And he was an emperor. Because that's what it says, but it means the Roman Emperor. Got it. Okay. Decreed a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Not the world, but the Roman Empire. Got it. Okay. So, what have these people done for me? They have told me what that text means and they've incorporated that meaning into it so I don't have to think through this two-step process very hard. All right? That makes sense? Now, you, now that, is the simplest, uh, that is the simplest illustration I can give because you all thought it was flipping ridiculous that I would ever think Caesar Augustus was registering plants in Fiji or Australia because we know the Christmas story. But... This, you get other verses like this. This is how Bible translators work. They either go the word for word what's there, which means you need to do a bit more thinking, or they go for the meaning and they communicate what they think the author was thinking, which has a danger to it. Oh, not a danger. It has a weakness to it. And the weakness is you're submitting to what those translators think, Paul or whoever the author is said. Okay? What's your point, Chad? Something old, something new, something borrowed. If you're communicating or you just want an easy read or you don't have to think too hard, you have a Bible in this spectrum. If you're not much of a thinker or you're communicating to people who are kids or whatever, you want to have a Bible down here. This is the Bible you want to draw upon that communicates the meaning. But if you're doing study, if you're looking hardcore into an issue, I want to dig down deep into this, don't go for them because they're doing the work for you. You need to do the work. And you need to start with the word-for-word -word varieties. You borrow those ones when you study. Okay? These ones are for reading, and these ones are for your own study and reasoning and learning. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Have Bibles that you can draw on for those reasons. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Sorry, can I ask you a clarifying question? Good. Depending on what kind of reader you are. Because if you're a fairly good reader and you're an intellectual person, not the right word, but if you're, if you're like an eager student, you love, then you'll bend, probably bend towards this way. If you just want an easy reading Bible, you don't want to think too hard, then you lean towards this way. So if you're encouraging someone of a preteen pre -teen or teenager, that's why New Living is so popular yeah. for that age group because it's kind of in that spectrum. So it depends on your personality. So there's 
say, for example, I like um, good I, I like studying. Yes. I might find that end better. Yes. But then, and so if I have to fight on this end as my everyday, it might not be as beneficial. No, I think if you're if you're like if you want to study and do thinking yourself, then when you choose a go-to regular Bible, you're going to be up this end. Which is why a lot of the teacher types, and in evangelical circles particularly where they're quite strong on teaching, the ESV is pretty popular. It's got pretty popular in the last twenty years, uh, fifteen years or whatever, because they're big on teaching. So that the, and and the guy, the guys, the people that lead those churches and take those pulpits are generally of the teaching bent. If you're a preacher from uh, ACC Church, for example, or a bit more like Ra Ra, uh, and you don't want to take your your priorities not to take your crowd on an intellectual journey too much, you want to inspire rather than get them thinking, then you probably those churches are generally going to choose a new living translation down down this way. Yeah. So, Chad, in the first session, you talked Always. Just I said earlier, I'm going to mainly be focusing down here. I'll come to these two on occasion, but mainly I'm now in the science, the science area. But yeah, never neglect him and never neglect other people's perspective. Yeah. Chad, a bit more of a pastoral question. Feel free to ignore it. But is there a flaw in your mind, like on the um, paraphrasing end for a church that you would feel like maybe stay away from? Before people start to maybe not really be hearing the truth, or um, I, what's your recommendation on the church front? Like, I would say what I'm doing. So I know when I read the message what it is, but I would explain that before I read it. Yeah. So he's got some gorgeous yeah. words in there, you know. Uh, but I would explain before I read. I say, hear Eugene's take, poetic take on it, or, or something. But I would a quick thing like that. But, I, but as a regular preacher, preaching Bible, no. Yeah, I think I just think a quick explanation. Hopefully tomorrow, on my last session, I'll actually want to step into how we go from being a pupil to a teacher and how we actually take what we learn in private and communicate it to other people. So, yeah, but a little bit of explanation goes a long, goes a long way. Yeah. Um, just a clarifying statement, uh, just to take some notes. What's the difference between a translation and a Ah, uh, probably nothing. Strictly speaking, I think the yeah. way we talk about it, yeah. I think in Bibles, translation and version is probably the same. Edition, that's the difference. So you've got NIV and you've got the life application edition or the study Bible edition or the, uh, Chad's favourite is the cultural background yeah. study Bible edition. But yeah, uh, I think version and translation would use them. So on the spectrum, <laughs> on the spectrum, um, 
on the spectrum, people would go strict word for word, and you've probably got one up here called the inter... If you're a hardcore academic, you've got... Well, you just read it in the Hebrew, don't you? Uh, so you've got that, and you've got, you just read the Tanakh, and the interlinear. Uh, Young's literal is probably my most strictest one. And then as you go up on the spectrum for the thought for thought, some people say that paraphrase is like a radical left wing of the, of the party. You know, it's like the, 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 the crazy cousins. But it's still... But some people... It was still basically would fit, would fit on here. And the, the debate then, and this is where you just get too academic for, for our liking, but it's when people talk about there's, a, there's something else other than paraphrase. It's got a certain name when people draw on other languages and that, and that's what they, they um, sort of say that Brian does in The Passion, which is a lot of people have an issue with it. He draws on the Greek, he does the Hebrew for his Old Testament, but he also, he also includes in there, well, you know, I know the Bible was written in Greek, but when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say that Greek word, he said an Aramaic word. Jesus didn't speak Greek. So I'm going to incorporate what he probably said in Aramaic into that passage. And some people are like, mm, don't do that. But if you understand, <laughs> if, you, if you understand that, if you're a good Bible reader, you'll just go, I see what he's doing, it's interesting, you know. Uh, you won't get stressed about it. <laughs> In my humble opinion, some people get worked up about things. So paraphrase, I think, fits on the spectrum. But, but yeah, it would be down the end. Down the end. Yes. 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 Yeah. Almost all of them are committee ones. Yeah. And the good, the good thing about that, and that's, it is, it's the thing about Brian's is like, they call it a translation, but it might be not. But at least his name's on it. So at least you know it's by Brian Simmons. It's got one name, like J.B. Phillips was another one, 1977 or something. And then Eugene Peterson's The Message. No one ever calls it The Message. It's Eugene Peterson's The Message. You know one person wrote it. But honestly, Google Images, there's, there's plenty of people that do these whole spectrum so, things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they do whole graphs of it. And just as a helpful guy. Yeah. Yeah. Types of translation. You've got a really cool image with the types of translation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the spectrum will definitely come in. So. A lot of Bibles have in the right at the start, they explain about that translation. Yeah. And they talk about so I bring that into that area, but the point is, your something old Bible should be one that reflects your personality on the spectrum, but you're most familiar. Something new, who cares? You might go for a word for word for your something new, or you might go for a more hearty, passionate one because it's dealing with your heart. For the heart people. And then something borrowed, have a spectrum and choose them for a certain purpose. Just know what your purpose is. Something something blue is your electronic Bible. Okay? Blue, yeah. And, uh, oh, no, no, no. Blue because they are a haven for hyperlinks. 
So when you have a software program or you're reading the Bible on the interwebs, you have this, by the click of a finger, you have almost an un... so many resources at your disposal. There's a couple of websites. These are free, so these are the ones that I'll, I'll say. But Blue chats... Blue Letter Bible is one. Okay, I think it's .org, but whatever. Blue Letter Bible and BibleHub.com. Uh, Step Bible is another one. It's, it's fairly decent. But otherwise, you've got, goodness sake, you've got apps, you've got subscription services, you've got the hardcore Bible college students use logos, okay, and they pay for that or whatever. But those websites, and basically this is where preachers like me, every now and again you hear us say, the Greek word for this is, blah, because we think we're impressing people, right? But all we've done is gone on to Bible Hub, read it, clicked on the word, it showed us the Greek, we've read the definition in about five dictionaries, it then gives us a link to show where every single other recurrence of that word occurs. And you can get that all at the click of a finger. In the old days, Bible, uh, study Bibles would have had a concordance up the back, which gave you some cross-references. But honestly, as something blue Bible, electronic, you get so many at the click of a finger. I just don't know where I'd be without it. And while I make a joke about preachers quoting the Greek, and some people way overdo it because who do they think they're talking to? But... There is actually some value in doing that. So I actually do do that sometimes as a cultural way of constantly reminding my listeners we're reading an ancient book in a different language and it's written in a different time to a different culture and a different people. So sometimes I just do it for that uh, as a way to constantly give people context, which we'll get to later, context of the book that we're actually reading. Okay, So we don't always do it to impress people. But four Bibles, I think, are essential if you're going to be serious about your Bible reading. Something old really familiar Bible, something new, maybe for your heart, something borrowed and something blue. Uh, get yourself those, add to your Bible collection and, uh, and go for it. Be a serious Bible reader. I want to give, give me an idea of time. We have another 45. Okay. How to read the Bible. Oh, Chad, you'll leave so much out. Okay, I'm going to go quick. I'll stand up and do preacher mode. One point on how to read the Bible. Remember to pronounce your vows. That's very cryptic, isn't it? A, E, I, O, and U. A. Every time you open the Bible, read it with appreciation. Step one in our process is what does the Bible say? We need to read it. Well, Chad, how do I read the Bible? A, read the Bible with appreciation. Appreciation has two meanings. It means we're grateful for it, first and foremost. And if Jesus' parable of the sower taught us anything, it's that there's something about the condition of the heart when the word of God comes into it that determine how fruitful it is. And something, something about an attitude of gratitude. God, I'm grateful for this. That prepares our heart to hear God through his word. So if you've developed a hot culture in your family or in your life of saying grace every time you have a meal, then for goodness sake, do that when you read the Bible too. Lord, for what I'm about to receive, I'm truly, truly grateful. I really, really appreciate this gift today. And that will do go some measure in preparing your heart. Okay, Read the Bible with appreciation. The other thing about the word appreciation of what it means is that it means that we appreciate what the Bible is. 
And we appreciate what it's not. It's not a science book. Although it has stuff to say about the natural world we live in, don't think you're reading a science book when you open it up. It has incredible modern implications for us today in the 21st century, but you've got to appreciate it's an ancient book with stories that are 3,000 years old, 2,000, 2,500 years old. You appreciate that's what you're reading when you open it every time. Appreciate you're re- reading, a, uh, reading a book that is both, in a sense, divine and human. Jesus was the Word made flesh. The Bible is the Word made text. It comes from heaven through human beings, and that's what I'm reading. So I, I have to expect something supernatural, but I'm also expecting that it comes through the pen and personality of people in a certain cultural setting who have a certain language and a certain experience and different personalities at different times. I need to appreciate what the Bible is. And there is so much we could say about that, and that's we just have to end it there. Appreciate. A. What's next? E. Read the Bible with expectation. Expect, 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 expect something. Don't do it. Yeah, expect. You, every relationship that we have operates by expectations, whether you're conscious of it or not. And we should expect, no, we should expect something, sorry. You do expect something every time you open the scripture. Just know what it is. Just expect something. And for me, because I'm full of alliterations, it's, it's head, heart and hands. I expect God to minister to my head. I expect to learn something. I expect to learn something today. I expect God to minister to my heart. I expect to feel something. And I expect God to minister to my hands. I expect to do something about it. And while every time I read the Bible, I may not walk away with a doing action. I don't impose that upon my reading. I must do. I must do. I must do. But I still have an expectation. I still have an expectation that God may speak to me today about doing something. Expect. A-E-I. Read the Bible with intention. Intention. It's different to expectation, is what I mean. Intention. Most people, most Christians who don't get serious about their Bible reading, who don't understand how it works, who think the whole thing is too damn confusing and, and irrelevant for their life, is because they don't approach it intentionally. They approach it like a lucky dip at a fun fair. Every, if they dare open it up ever, because it's on the shelf or whatever, they open it up and just sort of put their finger down, or like me, go, oh, there's nothing highlighted on that page. Oh, that looks a bit, ooh, that looks a bit judgmentally. Oh, here's a highlighted bit. I'll read that. Um, and there's no intention in how to read the scripture. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing intentionally. And there's three main um, proven ways to read the Bible with intention. The first is to take a devotional approach. Right? You were speaking about that before. When you are opening the Bible and are intentionally ministering to my heart, I'm intentional about meeting the author. I'm very intentional about meeting with God right now. And that might mean in that devotional approach, you're in a quiet place, you might have music in the background, you may have your guitar on you, you may have a journal because someone spoke about journaling yesterday. Well, I'm intentionally... Lord, minister to my heart as I read. That's my intention. You might take one passage, Psalm 23. 
And you just read that five times. Oh, no, you don't. You read the first verse five times. And you just meditate on it. Meditate on that one thing. That one thing. Why? Because I'm intentionally reading it with a devotional heart approach. And devotion, if I was talking about being devoted to someone, it means I love you and I'm loyal to you. I'm devoted. But when it comes to being devoted to God, it's worship. So I'm, I'm intending to worship God as I read. Okay. So the first approach is devotional. And then, of course, you've got devotional books that can help you with that. And you've all, all, all familiar with those. You can get an app or whatever. You can get an app for that, right? Devotional. What's the second way to read the Bible? Ah, topical. I am deliberately, intentionally reading today because I'm searching out this topic. I'm looking at tongues. I'm looking at baptism. I'm looking at chicks in the church. I'm looking at eschatology. I'm looking at blah, blah, okay? Faith or hope or something. Israel, Israel, place of Israel in in the modern, okay, in eschatology. Okay, good luck. So I'm doing that. But I'm intentionally searching out a subject. And that's where your concordance comes in. That's where your blue Bible comes in because you're looking up water baptism and you're looking up every single reference you can possibly find on water baptism. You're writing it down. It's a topic. I'm doing a topical study. Lastly, Chad's favourite, which I, of course, think is the most important because it's my favourite, is the sequential or chronological approach. Sequential or chronological. For the vast majority of books in the Bible, they were intended to be read from start to finish. We're looking at this first step in hermeneutics. What does it say? We're asking the question, how do I read it? I'm saying A-E-I-A-U. I'm saying you read it with intention. Well, one of the ways you intentionally read the Bible is by opening up to Luke chapter 1, start at verse 1, and just read the darn thing. Read it. When Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonians, and I think another one, maybe Colossians, he said, I want you to read this letter aloud to the church. And I'll tell you what right now, he did not want someone to get up and say, here's Paul's letter. Uh, Let me just start with the greetings at the back. Oh, by the way, he said something else over here on the third page. And by the way, I found this was interesting, slightly controversial. Here's half a, half a sentence here. No, when he said, have the reader letter read aloud, he meant to stand up, start at the front and just read the thing. And our Bible, as I said before, never had chapters and verses. It never had numbers until about the 1500s. The Bible was not a collection of verses. It is not a collection of chapters. It is not. It is a collection of sentences, in paragraphs, in thoughts that sort of all that sort of have a progression to them that are in a collection of books that are put together according to their genre. There is if someone wants, if someone asks you how many verses are in the Bible, you're at a quiz night for church, say none. Okay? <laughs> there are no verses in the Bible. It is a modern invention that is simply there to help us find something quickly. Okay? That's it. Don't read verses. Don't read chapters. Read it and stop whenever you want when you think there's a thought break. Now, most chapters do have thought breaks, and that's why intelligent people put them there. But they're not there by the Holy Spirit. They're not spirit-inspired. They are just there purely for referencing, and sometimes they're best to be ignored. Okay? You're meant to read it. So reading sequentially. Definitely, except for Psalms and Proverbs, which you can, you know, you can kind of read them like a cookbook. In just oh that that's one for me today because they're sort of single nuggets yeah, maybe but generally speaking almost every book 
start to finish, okay? And I personally think a lot of books you should read in one sitting. I said to you right at the start, your homework's read 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Read, don't read a chapter and then a chapter the next day. No, stuff the chapters. Read the book. Those books you can read in 20 minutes if you just don't stop. Just read it and you'll miss detail, but that's fine because a detail is when you do a topical study or maybe a heart devotional reading. I want a minute, I want to meditate on that trip. No, I'm talking about just reading it sequentially. Just read the thing. And even if you miss details, what you will do is it will help you see the big picture. And I'm going to talk tomorrow about how to understand what the Bible means and how important the context is. And one of the best ways to get context is just by reading it sequentially, reading the thing. Okay. As when it comes to reading the whole Bible, Chad, how should we read the whole Bible? Should I do a Genesis one to Revelation twenty two plan? Should I read a verse in the oh, sorry, a couple of chapters in the old, a couple of chapters in the new? There's many different plans to read if you want to do a Bible in a year thing or whatever. Chad's favourite way is doing this. Two, three years ago, I put together a schedule where our church could read through the Bible as the story happens in chronology. So, where's the left? Over here. So you start reading the history of Genesis, Exodus, basically the Torah. Although, oh, by the way, you read Job over here because Job fits in this period of history. And then as you keep reading and then you get to the stories of David, well, then you take that psalm and you read it there because that was David's psalm. And then you take wisdom, Proverbs, wisdom, uh, Solomon's wisdom and then you read it there. And then you're reading into the histories of when the Israel was divided and blah, blah, blah. And there's a prophet God comes called Nahum. Well, what do you do? Well, you read him there. Okay? You know when he is speaking in that period. You read through, you come to the book of Acts and you see Paul go to Galatia and then he goes to Thessalonians and then, but he wrote a letter then to the Thessalonians. So you stop at chapter 15 and you read Thessalonians there so that it makes sense in, sense in the story, okay? It's a little choppy, um, a little choppy. It's not an exact science, but it was one of the best things I've ever done for my spiritual development and my Bible understanding is to read the Bible and just see the story unfold as it happened. If you do that, I just walk, you just walk away with, with understanding where the prophets fit and where the epistles fit as the story happened. Because even though Hebrews may culturally think linear, okay, and that's a whole debate about Jewish teachers often bring that up, they think sort of circular, but whatever. The point is most of us think linear. Okay? We're trained to think beginning, middle, and end. And so it's helpful for our brains to read the Bible in in that way, so says Chad. Okay, certainly for me it was. That was an intentional way to read the Bible. A appreciation. E expect. I read it intentionally. Know what the heck you're doing. O. How do we read the Bible? Read the Bible with openness. Read the Bible with openness. I'm open to learn. Because guess what? You don't know it all, and you might be wrong. What? Shane, you don't know it all, and you might be wrong. So as you read the Bible, be open to going, I don't know it all, and I might be wrong. And so I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to relearn. I'm willing to unlearn. I'm willing to see something I've never seen before. I'm going to trust the good teacher to teach me. 
I'm open to whatever it is he has to say. That's all I say about that. And the last thing is you. You've got to read the Bible with some level of understanding. Of understanding, um, basically, what we're talking about today. Understanding the rules that govern the game. Okay? Aussie rules, Most all of us are Australians, unless you've come from Canada. Okay? And if you have a Canadian come over to Australia and you say, let's sit down and watch the footy, I'll show you Aussie rules footy. They sit there, they've got no idea what's going on. They think it's a ridiculous game that is disorganised, it doesn't make sense, this is stupid, this is this just is nonsense. They don't like the game. And even if someone loves sport, for international people watching Aussie rules for the first time, generally it doesn't make sense. And so they don't become a fan. However, if you sit with them and you explain the rules, then they understand and they want to watch more. And the more they watch, the more they understand the rules. And the more they understand the rules, the more they want to watch. And the more they watch, the more they understand the rules. And the more they understand the rules, the more they want to watch. And there's this upward spiral of familiarity and fandom. Familiarity and fandom. Familiarity and fandom. And that's what happens with us the more we understand how the Bible works. I, and this, oh, I did Chad's thing. I was there for two days. I have a better understanding now. So I want to actually go home and read the Bible again. And the more I read, the more I understand. And the more I understand, well, actually, the more I want to read now. And so understanding what we're talking about, coming to the Bible with some level of understanding, understanding the rules is really important. How do we read the Bible? There's a right way and there's a wrong way. There's a helpful way and there's an unhelpful way. Well, here's five things. Pronounce it as. Read it with appreciation. Expectation. Intention, openness and understanding. And if you read it well, that will set you up to the second very challenging question of discovering what the Bible actually means. Because at the end of the day, knowing what the Bible says is one of the simplest tasks we have. People have translated it for us. It's, there's different versions, there's different translations. Okay, So there is, there is something called textual variance and different manuscripts and blah, 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 and we won't get into that today. But generally speaking, knowing what the Bible says is really simple. But knowing what the Bible means is something altogether different. But at least reading it well will set us up to answer this second question. And we've got 15 minutes to start addressing this question. Should we have a stretch and a very quick breath of fresh air or is it only me that's feeling like I need some fresh air? Okay, stand up, rub your bum and and, uh, whatever you need to do. Shake your legs. Take that off the recording. Like with the smoker comment. Well, because we're all relational beings, I'm sure you've all been in a situation where you've had a disagreement with someone or they've had a disagreement with you and it's, it's one of you has said this phrase, I know that's what I said, but it's not what I meant. It's not what I meant. So those two things can be very different. So my wife and I, we had a great holiday um, in Fiji once and um, with three kids it was expensive to get there and our whole thing with travelling 
We went there for the weather, okay? So dads, I spent money on air tickets, but I didn't spend that much money on accommodation. I sort of went for the budget type of thing. And we got three kids. It's very expensive traveling with three kids. And so we ended up going to this, this place and we didn't realize till we got there, it was like a backpacker place. That so there was like parties and, and uh, on the beach and it was like, okay, this is great. But we had a family room and uh, it was self-catered because I, I wanted to get a place for the kitchen. And they had these big old pots and pans like you'd find at a Christian campsite. You know, you probably would have, there'd probably be stuff like this in the United Church, right? Just an old pan. And Jay thought, well, we don't have much money, so we're going to cook our own food. And she thought, I'll cook rice in this pan. So she puts the rice in, water, we try to get, we get it from the supermarket or whatever. And the whole bottom of the thing just totally burnt, burnt out. I don't know if anyone's tried to cook rice in an old pan. Anyway, it just got burnt. A whole bunch of it stuck there. She's a bit devo. We're all flipping starving. And I thought I'd encourage her. I said, honey, you can do it. You can, you can do this. You know, I'm trying to encourage her. I'm like, millions of women do this around the world every single day. You can do it. Now, what I meant was, you can do it. It's a possible thing. People always do this. I know you've got it in you. But that's not what it meant to her. That's not how she heard it. And so our holiday was almost cut very short because the meaning that came to her was very different to the meaning that I intended. All right, that's enough of the burden. Take your seats. The point is, there's a difference between knowing what was said and what was meant. And this is generally where, as I said before, a lot of the agreements um, come out. On the day of Pentecost, says, says the Pentecostal kid, um, Peter got up and he quotes Joel 2. And he says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what the text says. But what does that mean? In the last days of what? In the last days of the week? It's going to be a Friday and a Saturday. In the last days of February? Is it in, is, is it in the last days of high school? Mm-hmm. Is it in the last days of the old covenant temple standing? Is it in the last days of planet Earth? Is it in the last days of the Industrial Revolution? What does that mean? I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean... Holy Spirit literally, like, is on people's flesh, on, on skin, or is it the flesh of birds and animals as well? Oh, no, because the meaning-based Bible tells me it means all people. It says that your young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Well, what about the girls? And if I have a dream, does that mean I'm an old man, or is it only the young men that get them? And then it says the, blood, the, the moon will turn to blood. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that it would literally one day turn to a globby bunch of haemoglobin red blood cells and blah, 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 and just like fall out of the universe because it's literally become blood? Where does that come from? Or does it just mean it turns red? Or is it not talking about the moon in our sky at all? Is the moon a picture of something else? Or what does it mean? What does it mean, the dreadful day of the Lord? Is a day a day? Is it, does that mean there's a 24-hour terrible day? Or does day mean something else? Does day mean an era? Does it mean, because Peter says something about a thousand, what does he say? A day's like a, 
doesn't mean there's exactly a thousand years that are dreadful. Or does it mean something else? Well, there you go. So we know what it says, but what does it mean? And uh, this is the whole thing of exegesis. This is the whole area of working out, as I said, the aim of exegesis is the author's intended meaning. The meaning may be nuanced. It may have layers, like a parfait, okay? It might, there might be nuances in there, but in a sense, there is only one meaning in the sense that it's the author's meaning. Now, that might sound simple, but remember, when we're dealing with the Bible, we're dealing with co-authors. We're dealing with humans and God. So even Daniel writes his prophetic book, chapter 10 or something. He didn't know that at the time, but he's writing it. And he's got this incredible vision from a heavenly being who says, here's the future of your people, blah, 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 blah. And he writes it down. And as he's writing it down, he says, I didn't know what the angel meant. So even Daniel, who wrote the Bible, didn't know what he meant. So when we say, what does the author mean? It might sound simple, but it can be actually very complex. We are very far removed from the original authors. Uh, we are very far removed from them culturally, languagely. We're removed from them in the environments that they are in. And uh, so it is a tough exercise, which is why hermeneutics books are this thick. Because a lot of them have to do with, with this step. But I will try to keep things as simple as I can. And in this step, I want to share with you what I consider the ABCs of exegesis. Okay, here's four points. For goodness sake, Chad. Three S's, A-I-A-U, ABCs. It all makes sense one day. The ABCs. This is what we're doing today and tomorrow. Four key things to working out what does the author mean? A, 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 A. You've got to consider the author and audience. The author and the audience. When you read the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, who's speaking and who are they talking to? The author and audience. B, we'll come to these in detail, but B. means big picture background. Big picture Background or backdrop. Everything you read in the Bible has a context. It fits as part of a big picture. And unless you know that big picture, you won't really understand the meaning of that one thing you're reading. Okay? Context, context, context. Big picture background. <coughs> C. How do I discover the meaning? You compare content. Compare content. You don't draw a conclusion on what something means until you cross-reference and corroborate your content. You compare it with other scripture. You allow the Bible to explain itself, you interpret scripture with scripture. C, compare content, corroborate your content. And then S, the last thing to consider, ABCs. See what I did there? ABCs. The S stands for the style of speech. Okay, the style of speech which I have to put it that way just to fit with the S, but it's basically literary genre, okay? Genre, genre. Now, the best-selling hermeneutics book of all time, it's 40 years old now, was actually written, get this, by a Pentecostal theologian. And his name's Gordon Fee, and he and his mate did a couple of, of books, but they're, 
that the first one they did was how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And style of speech takes up probably 80 to 90% of the book. Okay, that's their approach, is literary genre is their main thing. Uh, but for me, it's just one of these four, four things. It's important, but I'm not a scholar. I don't know as much as they do. You can go to them if you really want to dig into it. But ABCs. So the first thing, let's start with A. To work out what the Bible means, we need to discern the author and the, auth- the audience. Who is writing and who are they writing to? Who are they writing to? If you were to read your Bible with a lucky dip approach, which you're not going to do because we read the Bible intentionally, and you were to say, Lord, speak to me, and open up and your finger falls in the book of Job, it is highly likely that what you're going to read is bad advice. Because most of the book of Job is spoken by men who don't know God. And it's not until you get to the end of the book of Job that God says to them, you guys were wrong. You douchebags in the Hebrew. You guys were wrong. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know who I am. You're wrong. And so a good part of what you're reading in the book of Job is actually wrong. It's not true. Now, it's in the Bible. It's the word of God. But they're not the words of God. They're the words of those three friends who don't know him. And if you don't know who's speaking when your finger lands on the page, you might be reading something that's actually all wrong. You might be reading something that says, you will not surely die. You can eat the fruit but not surely die. Well, there you go. That's what God said. No, that's not God speaking. Okay. You've got to know who's doing the speaking. And you've got to know who they're speaking to. Let me, focus, let me do some girl, some girl illustrations since we've brought this up. Proverbs 31 contains the beautiful poem, which we've come to know as the Proverbs 31 woman or the wife of... Let's turn there. Okay, let's find Proverbs. Let's find Proverbs. Find Proverbs. Find Proverbs. Psalms in the middle and it's just after Psalms. Okay. Those of you with a study Bible will probably have a heading here anyway. Proverbs 31, right at the end, and verse 10, um, it's your, your heading there might say epilogue or the wife of noble character poem or something like that. And it says this, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. And it goes on to explain she's entrepreneurial, she's creative, she's hardworking, she loves her kids, she's beautiful, she's up late at night, she's honest, she's a creative, and she loves God, and rati, rati, ra. Author and audience. Who wrote this poem? Okay. King Limil. Now, we kind of know that because of You've got a paper Bible, so you can see it in one glance. Okay. You know that from chapter 31, it says, verse 1 says this, the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. So then it lists, there's like eight verses there, and the Bible doesn't have verses, but you know what I mean. It's got a whole passage there. 
and then the poem starts. So it's probable that this is actually a poem written by a queen mother, that she taught the king. Okay, the mother taught Lemuel. Now, who's Lemuel? Well, there's a bit of debate. Some people think it's a nickname for Solomon. So this is, guess what, if that's true, Bathsheba teaching Solomon a poem and he puts it in the book. Okay, because that's one of the running theories. It's Chad's theory. And we know that, I, I, whatever, I'm not, not going to sell my life on it, but we know that because the book um, from chapter 1, verse 1, describes this whole book as the Proverbs of Solomon. So Solomon put the whole thing together and it seems like Lemuel might be some type of nickname that Bathsheba gave her son. So this poem is written by a mum. Okay? Who is the poem written to? Who's the audience of the wife of noble character poem? Okay. The son. Proverbs 31 is all about, primarily, this amazing woman. An amazing wife with incredible qualities. But the poem was not written to girls. It was not written to a daughter. What does it say? What does it mean? If we understand what the poem means, what the intention of the author is, we need to know who it's written to. If we think this poem is written to a daughter, then you're going to read it a certain way. You're going to think, here is a list of things that a daughter should be like. This is what you should be like. Here's the glass ceilings you need to break. You need to be creative. You should be hardworking. You should be, should be, should be, should be, should be, because I'm writing this to my daughter. While the poem is mainly focused on a female character, it's not directed to a female. It's directed to a son. We know that because from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, if you turn back and you read the whole book, it says, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, listen to my teaching, my son, listen to my teaching, my son, listen to my teaching, my son, listen to my teaching. It's a dad talking to his boy, a dad talking to his lad, a dad talking to his boy. And then Solomon, wise as he is, gives his woman in his life the last word and says, I'm going to give you the last chapter for you to share your wisdom with our son. So that this verse we read in chapter verse 10, it doesn't say a wife of noble character who can be her. Hey, my girl, this is the type of woman you should be. It says who can find her. This is a mum talking to her boy and saying, do you want to find this woman? Who can find a woman like this? I'm going to tell you what kind of man you need to be be worthy of wedding a girl like this and if you don't understand if you don't see that you're going to miss as we read the poem it's the male's character that's under scrutiny here it actually says things about the quality of the man that's worthy of scoring this chick of finding this incredible woman because she's talking to her boy to say what kind of man do you need to be to find a woman like this now listen girls in the third step, which is what does this poem matter? If you, as a female, find inspiration from this woman, brilliant! If you think, I want to model my life on a woman like that, awesome! If you find qualities about her that you admire, excellent. 
do it. That's how it might have uh, implications or significance for your life today. But the author's intent, the meaning of why this poem was put together, we will miss that if we don't understand the primary audience she was talking to. When, when we open ourselves to a possible misread, she was not talking to her daughter or he was not talking to her daughter to say, this is what you should be like to be a real woman of God. No, you're talking to a son saying, this is the kind of man that gets a girl like that. And I think this passage should be preached at men's breakfasts more than women's events. Because there are things in this passage about the man that you'll miss if you don't understand who the audience is. And you can go home and read it and work out what these things are. And this is a, I thought, a light-hearted example. <laughs> Got a bit serious then. A light-hearted example of something that we maybe just take for granted. But we have a lens of how we read things if we don't know who it's written to. Let me stay on the girls for a moment and let's look at the passage that talks about women should be silent, church. Should we do that? Yeah. Let's do that. Actually, don't do that. Do that. <laughs> Let's do something else. Turn to John 3.16. John 3.16. John 3.16. We're looking at the author and the audience. The reason that you did not come in here this morning slaughtering doves and splattering its blood around the place is because you know that Leviticus is not addressed to you. All the Bible is written for you but it's not written to you. You're not necessarily the audience. Leviticus is written to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Author and audience. It's for you. All scriptures God breathed. There's something I can get out of that book, but it's not written to me. It's not written to a Christian. It's written to the ancient Israelites. Know who the author is. Know who the audience is. John 3.16 um, hands up in your Bible if those words are written in red. Okay? That means who spoke them. Okay, he spoke in red apparently. It goes faster. How many of you is it written in black? Okay. Does it have who spoke those words? Does it have quotes around it? Do you have a red letter Bible? Yeah. <gasps> what? You've got a red letter Bible, but those words are written in black. I grew up on the 1984 something old NIV. And I grew up my whole teenage life, at young adult life, reading, for God so let the Lord, he gave his only son, whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life, in red. If you were to ask me, who is the author of those words? I would have told you 10 years ago, without any hesitation, Jesus. Jesus said that because it's in red. But then in 2011, the NIV, same committee, put out a new edition. They added brothers and sisters and they did a few other little tweaks around the place. And one of the tweaks that freaked me out one day was that I read the NIV and John 3.16 was in black. The same translation, 20 years later, now were telling me that John said those words, not Jesus.
Who was the author of those words? Now, at the end of the day, you might go, doesn't matter, God's the author. Good answer, Chad. All right, Jesus is always the answer anyway. Jesus is the answer. But this is an example of a really interesting uh, thing here. When our Bible was written in Greek, let's just stick with the Greek, it had almost no punctuation. You look at ancient Greek writings and it's like all caps lock with almost no spaces between anything, okay? There's no full stops, there's no chapters, we talked about that, there's no commas, there's no quote question marks, okay? There's none of that and there's no quotation marks. Our translators put those quotation marks in so to help us read them as English readers. And in, in 1974, when the NIV came out, in 1984, the translators thought that Jesus spoke those words, so they put quotation marks around them and then put them in red to make it really easy. But those quotation marks were never there. So years later, the NIV get together and they look at it again and they go, you know what, the more we know about Greek and the more we study this chapter and the more we understand John's flow... I don't think it should have those quotation marks. Dang it, I think we should take them out and put it in black. I think it's John that wrote that. Okay. Different Bibles approach this differently. And if you're in a word-for-word Bible, these people that are really strict on like word-for-word, they won't even put quotations in anywhere because they're like, there's no such thing as red letters. It's all God's word. That's our approach. Everything's God's word. So there's no quotation marks, no red, no nothing. It's just as it is. But people more down here are like, no, we need to help people understand. So we're going to put quotation marks in. What does that have to do with women speaking in church? Let's come to the book of Corinthians. You okay? Not yet? Okay. You don't know where I'm going, do you? The book of Corinthians is written because Paul had visited that church and he'd spent some time with them. And then they start having problems because they're a church. And so people rock up and chase Paul down and they say, listen, mate, things are turning to poo and they explain a lot of their problems to him. With that, they also send a letter to Paul. Okay. First Corinthians, sorry. I haven't said what chapter yet because I didn't prepare to do this. So I don't know where I'm going. Uh, Chapter 7, just try chapter 7. Okay, listen up. Context. Paul's got people from the Corinthian church coming to him and saying, Poo's hitting the fan, we've got problems. And he goes, okay, I hear you. Thank you, people from Chloe's household. Then what happens is, either before or during, I can't remember, he gets a letter from the church with a whole bunch of questions. Wondering about this, wondering about this, wondering about this. What do you reckon, Paul? So Paul's now sitting down on his laptop, about to write back to them, okay, And next to him is the letter that they've written him. This is the letter that the Corinthians wrote to me with all their questions. Oh, crikey, look at all that. Okay, I've got to deal with those issues. So now Paul, with that letter next to him, now begins to write back to them. And one of the things that he does, according to some translators, is he takes their letter, he takes bits out of it, and he quotes them back to them. Have a look at this in chapter 7. Because why, why are you saying all this, Chad? Because we're looking at who authored these words. That's the question. Who's the audience? Who's the author? Who authored these words? Chapter 7 and verse 1. 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Hands up if your Bible has quotation marks there. What do you have? No, 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 what Bible? Oh, this is CSB. CSB? Oh, so that's what you've got, Shane. You've got quotation. So around that, so your Bible says, Paul speaking about the matters you wrote about. Quote! It's not good for a man to have sex with a woman. Okay, that's what you've got. Does anyone not? Do you have quotes as well? Yeah, does anyone not have quotes? Okay, and what Bible have you got? New King James. New King James. Ah, okay, more word for word. Okay, down here. The ESV people, CSB, they're like, no, no, no. Paul is not saying it's good for a man to not have sex. He's quoting them back to them. Paul is saying, get what I mean? Paul's looking at their letter and saying, now about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sex. Yeah, right. And then he answers that question. Because as you keep reading, he then says this. Now concerning about it's that which you wrote, quote, it's, it is good for a man to not have sex with a woman. End quote. But... Because of the temptation to sex, each should have his own wife and a woman a husband. The husband should give her conjugal rights and each one to a husband. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, you said this. Yes, but. It's kind of true, but not really. I'm going to clarify what you said in your letter. And he clarifies them. Does that make any sense? So he quotes them. Now, those quotes are not there. The translators have studied and they've thought we should put quotes there to help people understand. He is rebutting their view and bringing clarity to what they said in the letter he wrote him. Turn to chapter 3, verse 4. Oh, well, that's kind of easy, isn't it? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Have you got quotes there? Yeah, Yeah, fine. Okay, chapter 6, verse 12. And then so he takes their letter, what they're saying, he repeats it back to them. Chapter 6, verse 12. Quote, everything's permissible for me. Paul speaking. Duh, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible for me. (laughs) Yes, but I will not be mastered by anything. Quote, food for the stomach and stomach for food. Yes, but God will destroy them both. After all, the body's not meant for sexual humanity for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Quotes them, what they've said to him, rebuts it. Quote, rebut. Quote, rebut. Chapter 10, verse 23. This is just what he's doing. He's got their letter with him. He's rebutting. Chapter 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible. Yes, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. Yes, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but only the good of others. And then what does chapter 8 say? Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Who's got that in quotes? Has anyone got that one in quotes? Yes, yeah, so some translations don't. My NIV doesn't. So what, before we start getting into the women thing, because I'm about to introduce you a, a, um, one theory. We have now established, without any doubt, the Bible does not come to us with quotation marks. So the translators put it there to help you understand what they think it means. Even John 3.16 is affected by this. In this letter, particularly, Paul is quoting them back to him. Some translators put them in quotes, some don't. My NIV here has some of those ones I just read in quotes and others not. 
because they, back in 1984, weren't even sure, and they're still trying to work it out. Translating the Bible is a complex issue, people. It's not that simple. Now we come to the women should stay silent remarks. Here is a theory. I'm not saying I believe this, but here's a theory. In their letter, someone in the church had said, women should stay silent in the churches and are not permitted to speak as according to the law, but ask your own husbands. Paul writes that back to them and then rebuts it and says, who do you think you are? Let's have a look. Chapter 14. Verse 34. This is where, because we're doing a Bible study here, we really need word-for-word versions. Okay, If you want to do this yourself, you really have to do that. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Um, it's hard to know where to start. As in all the congregations... Okay, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Verse 36. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people that have reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. In the Greek, and in a very strict translation like the RSV, which is what a lot of Bible college academics use, there's actually a word there. After it says, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church, there's an expletive there that's taken out of the thematic verses. So I'm going to read to you the RSV, Revised Standard Version. Okay, it says this. The woman should get silence in the churches. They're not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate as the law says. If there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, but it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What? Literally, W-H-A-T with exclamation mark. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones that's reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he sees the knowledge of what I'm writing to you as a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognise you, he shall not be recognised. There's an expletive there. It's like he says something about women being silent and then he says, what? Here's a running theory. Paul is quoting back to them something that a prophet in their church had said. That's what he's doing through the whole letter. He's writing to them, or back to them, all these things that he's asked of, of them. He's now quoting them, saying, You in your letter said to me, women should be silent in the church and not permitted to speak as the law says. Let me ask you, where in the Old Testament does it say that women are not allowed to speak? Nowhere. Nowhere. That's wrong. The law does not say that women should not speak. Now, Jewish culture at the time, by the way, believe it, but it didn't say that. So it seems like a false prophet, a false teacher in Corinth is saying, this is what the Torah says. And Paul's saying, what? Acknowledge that what I've written to you is the Lord's command. What did Paul write? Well, Paul just said to them in previous chapters about how women should pray in the church 
and prophesy and be found speaking. That's what I'm writing to you. And yet one of your people has said, women should be silent and not permit them to speak is disgraceful. He's quoting them back, rebutting them and saying, what? You should believe what I've told you is the Lord's command. Do you really think you're that spiritual that you can make up stuff on your own? Now, what I've just shared is a minority view. But when I asked you who you were at the start of this thing, you, you guys are all about understanding and wanting to know different perspectives. So this is the minority view that may not be true. One of the things that good Bible teachers do is that you should walk away, in, my, in Chad's understanding, you should walk away from a good Bible teaching having been heard things that are really clear and have made you really secure. I know something that I know that I know. You should walk away today knowing the three things that God's given us to understand the Bible, three clear steps in how to interpret it. You should understand today, there were some things that are so clear that I really learned today that have secured the way I read the Bible and understand it. But the other thing good Bible teaching does is it should stir your curiosity. You should leave going, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to look into that myself. That's, that's an interesting take. And so I actually wasn't planning to share that today. It is a minority view that I just want to throw out to stir your thoughts. Why? Because sometimes as we, as we seek to walk through our three steps, what does the Bible say? What does it mean? One of the first things we need to do, do to discover the author's intended meaning is the ABCs. Know who the author and the audience is. Sometimes the author of what we're reading is super clear. Sometimes it's not that clear. Who said God so loved the world that he gave his son? Was it John or Jesus? Well, Ten years ago, I was super clear. But now I'm not. And it seems like our best Bible scholars aren't clear either. Who said women should stay silent in the church and are not permitted to speak because it's disgraceful? Well, for many years, I was super clear. I thought it was Paul. But now I'm not so clear. There's a, it could have been someone else, and he was re- quoting that and rebutting it with his letter, as he does many times through here. I just don't know. So as much as I'm trying to keep things simple over these two days, Bible interpretation is not always simple. It's not. And that's okay. Because one of the things we're going to do in our last session, when it comes to what does it matter is I'm going to be encouraging you to keep the main thing the main thing, to focus on the clear and accept the fact that there are some things that are uncertain and there are some things that are cloudy, but they're not the things we fight over. They're not the things we break relationship over. They're not the thing we start cults over because that's how most cults start. Those of us who are interested in Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and have experience in revival centres and other things that we were saying before. Why? Because we pick one passage, we discern a meaning on and we major on that one thing. That's If you want to start a cult, that's pretty well how you do it. Okay, You pick, pick one obscure thing and make a doctrine out of that, despite what the rest of the Bible says. Do we need that on the recording as well? Um, how to start a cult 101. One of the things we're going to look at tomorrow about understanding what the Bible means is how important it is C to corroborate your content, to make Scripture interpret Scripture interpret Scripture. So to know that women in Corinth 
are praying and prophesying in church, which means they are speaking. Yes? And then for Paul to say, it's disgraceful for them to speak. It needs some scrutiny. It needs us to think about it. It needs us to go, I'm not going to form a doctrine and theology about women not speaking in a church context when I know there's other scriptures that say that and I'm going to compare scripture with scripture. And that's one possible explanation as to how it can stay consistent. Real quick, when it says church, does it mean building or like gathering? I'd assume gathering. Yeah. You're right, in the. No, because they didn't have buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes? Well, the, your translators don't think quotes belong there. Okay. Uh, just, but your, but your translators do believe quotes belong in John three sixteen. And it was the other descriptions in mine. Also, some of them. So, in my Bible, mine doesn't have the quotes there. I'm, this this theory okay. is proposing maybe they should, maybe our Bible should have a quote there. But we just, it's just iffy. Oh, well, I'm, so, so I'm, what are you saying that some translations do have quotes? No. I've got a good, really good question. No. Okay. But I am saying that the RSV, the one that I wrote out, has that explicit there, which other translations, many of them take out. Like, n- none of you all Bibles have that. What? What? And when you mentioned that explicit before, I was like, yeah. that Yeah, like, there's a little word okay. that is, that the RSV says, what, with an exclamation mark. It means something. And... Yeah, it's like a... Exclamation. Hey? Exclamation instead of expletive? Oh, yeah, maybe exclamation, yeah. Well, it's, it's not an exclamation point. No, technically that's called an expletive. Yeah. We just we have our expletive. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the RSV is, the RSV is like on, the, on the left side of the word for words. Yes. And so, so now what you do is you go home today and you go, go two bits of homework from Chad. I've got to read First Timothy. I'm just going to read it. And then I'm going to go to my Something Blue Bible. And I'm going to look up for that verse where Chad said there was an expletive there and go, well, it's not my English Bible and I don't believe him because who is this guy from Victor Harbour anyway? I don't believe him. I'm going to be a noble Berean and I'm going to study the scripture for myself. And so I'm going to go to my Something Blue Bible, my electronic Bible, biblehub.com or whatever. I'm going to read that, past that exact verse in the Greek. I'm going to read it in a bunch of translations and see what is this expletive that Chad's talking about because it's not in the Bible that I'm reading. Don't trust me. Read the, have a look at it in a something blue Bible with that shows the Greek. And the fancy word for this is a technical term. But down here, there's something called an interlinear Bible. And it's on, the, it's on your electronic Bibles where it will have the Greek and the English side by side. And it's very hard to read. It's clunky, but you'll see it side by side. And the, the Bible Hub, for example, will have all those Greek words with blue hyperlinks. And so you'll see that expletive there in verse 34 or whatever it is. It's just that all these other Bibles down here, take it out because it's hard to manage. Yeah. To clarify for the audience, there's no, currently no translation 
Yes. Now, if you then Google this and you... I can find you those resources if you like because this is from my book and I've got a footnote here which means I've obviously cited the scholars that think that somewhere. I just can't remember who they are. But yes, this is, this is a view that you can find in scholarly in, 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 from some scholars. So, yeah. Um, if you come across... If you move away from the super controversial... If you come across a passage where there's, say, someone's presented you a new view, and it's not a view that has been held, and you're not going to walk into an average church to find it, how do you go about making sure that you're not part of a new Mormons group? Yes. Versus a innovative interpretation of scripture. Like, so what's the process that you would take? In the C, which we'll get to tomorrow, the ABCs, C's is about corroborating your content. And the idea is like being a detective. We, the Western world, you know, yeah, often hear people say the Western world's built on the Judeo-Christian values and ethic and whatever. Okay, what does that mean? Well, one of, one of the implications of that is that the Jewish Bible taught us when Moses had a criminal law code, you do not judge a criminal, especially if it's the death penalty, if this is serious, unless there's two or three witnesses. One witness is not enough. And that principle of two or three witnesses is basically a way to find empirical fact. We in the West believe that there is truth that is truth. Historically, in different parts of the world, in the ancient world, it was truth was whatever the king said it was that day because he was in a certain mood or whatever, okay? Or there's no such thing as empirical truth. But we have an empirical text and it's two or three witnesses corroborating. Why do you say that, Chad? When it comes to something like that, ooh, I think I've come up with an understanding. Before I would hold that as a conviction... I'd want to know two or three witnesses resonate. And your two or three witnesses may be the Holy Spirit with you and the witness of other saints. And so that would be, I haven't said I'm, I hold that. Well, let me put it this way. When it comes to tomorrow, we talk about majoring on the majors. When it comes to convictions that you hold, uh, we need to understand that some things we hold tightly. Like Paul the Apostle, when the Galatians try to distort his gospel, He's like, who the heck do you think you are? Don't you dare touch God's gospel. He would hold on to that thing tightly. But to the Romans, he'd say, listen, if you believe things about different foods and different times of eating different things, whatever, just don't cause anyone to stumble. I believe this. Others believe differently. On disputable matters, let's not break up. Let's not, you know. So something like this, I would never hold it as a strong thing, but I certainly put it there as a theory that makes, makes some sense to me. Yeah. But yeah, but there's views... I have a view on, and I actually do that in my book too, I have a view on uh, a Greek word. Are we out of time? There are certain things I'm, I hold minority views on. And there's certain things that I, I find interesting because intellect- it stimulates me intellectually. And I'm like... But I might only ever share them with one or two friends. I'm kind of toying with this idea that maybe Genesis 1 is about this. But I wouldn't say that out loud. Um, because, but, but I, and you've got to have friends that are, that are like that. But when I get into my pulpit, there's things that I, I've, you know, you major on the majors, you minor on the minors. And often I do that as a preacher. I'll say, look, here's a theory. In fact, sometimes I, I do this, I preach, and I go, let me present an idea to you. <laughs> I'll literally stand over the side and say, I'm not preaching now, I'm just talking, all right? I'm just sharing an idea. And I'll share a, 
a certain angle, but you do that with a light heart. But I think as preachers, it's good to do because it also makes people think it's okay to think in this church. It's okay that we have an environment where you can see things differently, entertain ideas, you know, it could mean that, it could mean that, and we're actually open to that. But, um, and I trusted you with that today on the basis of all the solid stuff Chad brought to know that, oh, you can throw out a little theory that hopefully gets me thinking. Yeah. Like I've tried to get people to, I, I lead a fairly charismatic and Pentecostal church. I do try to get people across onto the more word-for-word translation so that they can handle the crazier ideas that get thrown out and not just assume it's true, I guess. I guess like, yeah. like, for example, the Passion Translation, he definitely puts in some of his things and some people will read that and say, oh, that must be what the whole Bible says. It's like, well, maybe it could be what it but you know. So I guess I've tried to just teach this word for word, so then they can all, they hear an idea, they start an idea of like, well, this is what the original said, I know that's going to be the project, but I'm not sure if it's the best approach. Yeah. Because I think these days, people come to you and say, oh, I watched this YouTube guy, and he's explained that Jesus wasn't really God, he was something else, I'm like, well, great, but... <laughs> <laughs> but not great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the main point of that last thing is... The author and audience, and sometimes it's really clear who the author is, and who their audience are, and sometimes it's not that clear, but it's one of the main things to work out what the Bible means. You need to know who the heck's doing the talking and who it's being directed to. And that will help you, really help you grasp the meaning. That's A in the ABCs. Tomorrow, we'll try to cover the BCs. Which I'll see how much we can cover. And then I want to look at then this third thing. Well, if that's what the Bible means, what does it matter to us? And, how, and yeah, so we'll, we'll try to get there. Okay.